Listen up, aunties, because this episode is brought to you by Vintera Farms. Vintera offers quality organic CBD grown right in the state of California, offering a variety of products from full spectrum tinctures to gummies to muscle rubs to capsules. You're sure to find a product that meets your needs and lifestyle. I had the opportunity of working on the farm where the hemp for these products was grown, and I can tell you firsthand that these products feature hemp that was grown responsibly and harvested ethically. For 15% off your entire purchase, plus free shipping, head to VinterraFarms.com and type in promo code HAUNTED15 at checkout. That's V-E-N-T-E-R-R-A Farms.com. Promo code H-A-U-N-T-E-D-1-5. Thank you for supporting California farmers and farm workers. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted. With your hosts, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 123 of Let's Get Haunted. It is the final episode of September before we officially begin the spookiest season of them all. Yeah. But as we discussed a couple episodes ago, we're getting spooky early. I personally love this time of year. I know everyone loves fall, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I love this um, like pumpkin gourd. Like everyone like is suddenly a fucking farmer. You right, know? right. Yeah, like scarecrows. Yeah. And there's like hay bales in people's yard. Putting little miniature pumpkins on your dining room table. Yeah. Like there's like l- straight up people get dried corn stalks Mm -hmm. and put them outside of the door did you ever make corn husk dolls no that sounds terrifying you would take corn husks and then you'd like bunch them up and then put a rubber band or ribbon like maybe an inch down from the top and that would be the head and then you would rubber band out like two more stalks to make arms and then the bottom two would be legs so maybe we did that in preschool speaking of getting old i really want to talk about our office building because i don't think i have said on the show yet i know i've said this to you natalia i don't know if i've said it on the show yet that the elevator in this building is out of compliance by over a year really yeah wow if you look at you know they have like the little thing that says like this inspect last inspection date and like when do you have to renew it again it's been over a year since it's been expired and that fucking elevator sometimes just like the doors won't open when it comes to a stop have Mm. you ever had that happen to you it does seem like it's operating like it's not it doesn't seem like it's like a computer operating it. It seems like there's like a guy in the back with a bunch <laughs> of ropes and he's like just jumping around. Like a little haunted scarecrow yeah. that is like bewitched to live in the elevator shaft. Right. And it doesn't seem like he likes his job. No, not at all. <laughs> and I think that, that this is like his way of having some entertainment is like he'll stop you at the correct floor, but he waits just a bit too long right. to open the doors. I was in the elevator with like a random girl. We're going up the elevator did that thing where the doors don't open and then the doors opened so we're both like we don't say anything to each other because we don't know each other and then we just kind of look at each other before the doors open like are we stuck here and then the doors start to open and then as the doors are opening the elevator falls down a couple inches and we both are like "Ah!" and then when the doors open all the way we both just jump off we did not give it time to correct itself Oh my God. It was very scary. And then on top of it, today, as Natalia and I were coming into the office, I was like, hey, there's like a gurgling noise coming from 
the utility closet. Yeah, no, we walked by. I was gurgling to me is like that's gurgling. This was like a stream, like a babbling brook. Yeah, maybe I should have said babbling. There was straight up babbling coming from the utility closet. I mean, you know when someone's like pees and there's like a stream of water, it just sounds like a stream of water that doesn't stop. But like a good stream, like not like your urethra is not inflamed at all. You've got a steady stream, perfect prostate. Like I kind of feel like the man who operates the elevator, like the um, leprechaun or whatever it is. Yeah has now moved into the utility closet and has like a nice little fountain there for them to sleep. Maybe because of this show scarring me, when I walk by it, I just imagine like a janitor has died in there Mm. and he died with the water running and his head is at the bottom of the sink. Oh. It's frightening to me. Did you try to open the door? No, because I don't want to get cursed or attacked by a scarecrow leprechaun. I understand. I mean, there was a cricket a few weeks ago in the bathroom. It was. And it's still there. Yeah, I don't go in there anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> how, I don't. How, you guys, how do crickets live for such a long time? I hate it. And why do they always get into, like, the houses? And a, and a plate, like, when you can't move. Because that's what was happening to me. I was going pee. We were on the top floor of an office building. How the fuck did it get here? And, like, you're so vulnerable in the bathroom. Like, I'm sitting there peeing, yeah. minding my own fucking business. I see something move out of the corner of my eye. I look down. There is a giant fucking cricket so close to my foot. So close. And I'm wearing Crocs. Mm. So barefoot. Like there's nothing protecting me from this cricket. I don't like that at all. And I just, I don't like it. And it reminded me of a bug's life. And the Mm. crickets were evil in a bug's life. And they were. You know what? I, I don't fucking trust crickets. hate those motherfuckers. Grasshoppers. They're cousins. No, because here, let me tell you why. When you live in a place like Oklahoma in the summer, those little things, like the, the grasshopper fucks, they they like fly around your feet as you're uh, walking. Uh, uh. It's so fucking gross. I want to kill myself. And, <laughs> and then why are there these weird people on YouTube who eat them alive? You know what I'm talking about? They eat about? them alive? I know I've heard of like eating roasted crickets. No. Actually, I think I've had a roasted cricket. But the roasted crickets that I've eaten are like from Mexico and they're small and they're seasoned. I would not. And they're Why roasted. Why did you do that? Because someone offered it to me at work. And you had to say yes? I didn't have to say yes, but I was curious. Really? Yeah, but they're not. They don't look like that fucking gross ass master cricket that's in the living in the bathroom of this building. These are like little, little, little tiny crickets. Right. Okay. That are roasted. Have you ever seen the show Alone? Yes. Okay. So you know how they like eat bugs and stuff on there? Yes. No. I will just rather starve and die. (sighs) Yeah, but I feel like if you're starving, well, I guess... I'd just push the button to go home, let's be honest. If you guys have never seen that show, it's basically they drop it's like a starving wilderness. Contest. Yeah, they drop these wilderness survival experts into the middle of like the Arctic tundra or right. like the middle of the Canadian wilderness. Yeah, like somewhere it's cold yeah. and wild. Mongolia. Yeah. yeah. And then um, they have to survive. They have yes. to like build their own survival shit. They can't. They can only bring like ten items with them, and it's like most people bring like boots and like, like a flint. Knife. Yeah, and like a fire making flint thing, and maybe like a bow and arrow. And and they're truly alone. There's no camera crews no. or anything. They like drop them off with their own recording. So it's like you're watching vlogs of people who are alone out in the wilderness, and they have to survive for like ninety days or something like that. Well, they don't know how long it's going to be. It's just last man's. 
understanding wins like a million dollars or yeah. something, but they don't know what number they are. Like they don't get to know if other people have dropped out yet. Right. So you could just be out there alone and not for like know. a year. Yeah, exactly. And you wouldn't know like, are there three people left? Am I close to winning? Like, is there only one other guy left? Like if I make it one more day, I might possibly win. And so it's like a mental and physical challenge and what ends up happening is that people just like whoever can starve the longest because winter comes and at first people are doing okay they like caught they like shot a deer or they caught like some fish and they're feeling really good about themselves and they're like you know uh, but then by the end of it they're like boiling pine needles yeah. and like they have diarrhea and they've lost like 20 percent of their body fat they're catching mice that come through their tent it's the donner party oh Fuck, it is the Donner Party, but it's yeah. voluntary Donner Partyism right. To win a million dollars. Yeah, great show, though. You guys watch it. Um, <laughs> pretty good. They eat crickets sometimes, I guess is our point. Yeah, Bugs. look, I know a lot of the world eats crickets, and I know, like, in 50 years, we're all going to be eating, like, cricket bugs. powder oh, and for bugs sure. and for stuff, sure. but um, I'm not doing that shit today. Well, that cricket in the bathroom, I'm pretty sure is a witch in disguise because <laughs> that cricket, like, has thoughts. It's a shapeshifter. It's a shapeshifting being that has ambitions and a purpose, and right. I don't know what that purpose is, but it guards the drain, and mm. it just gets really close to your feet and like doesn't want you in its domain you know okay so tiktok has taught me that like jumping spiders are like cute and nice oh really yeah there's like a whole community on tiktok who's like shows the humanizes fucking bugs and like i've seen some weird stuff on tiktok now you know is it just a 10 second video where a spider appears to look cute with like a filter on it maybe or are spiders actually our friends? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not I willing know, to find out. I know some people have pet tarantulas and that's great for them. Because they're goth. Right. Which is cool. <laughs> but for me, they spiders kind of freak me out. And actually, Natalia, I think that this is a very good segue into my episode for today. Spiders? Well, spiders, some people like them. Some people are afraid of them. Right. And I'm kind of, I'm talking about some stuff today that <laughs> might be a little frightening. Maybe, you know, some people have spider phobias. Maybe some people are going to have a phobia about something I'm talking about mm -hmm. today. So I'd really just love to jump right into this spooky pre-Halloween topic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm really ready to leave the controversial argument oh. of our bugs worthy People. of our protection yeah. <laughs> as a species behind us. You know, it's too much to think about this early in the morning. I need a few more cups of coffee before I'm comfortable making any sort of statement. <laughs> but you know what I am comfortable making a statement about? I am comfortable making a statement on haunted things this early in the oh, morning. perfect, because I'm comfortable to hear a statement on haunted things. <laughs> Natalia, do you remember last year in December? Barely. When I, did, <laughs> when I did an episode on the haunted Christmas ghost ship of Chicago. Oh, 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 yeah, I do. In Santa Claus. Yes. What do you remember about that episode? Okay, so I remember there was this guy that was a fucking dead ringer for Santa Claus. Yes. 
um, black and white photos of them on this ship where they would go uh, again across Lake Michigan. I actually still yeah. remember a lot of this across Lake Michigan to these like far and distant Christmas tree farms, chop down the Christmas trees, bring them back on the boat for the people of the city to enjoy Christmas. Um, and he was a really good guy. He even like donated Christmas trees to people who like couldn't afford them. But then one time they went and uh, they had like gotten their big biggest Christmas tree salvage yet. And they just like disappeared. And then like Christmas trees started washing up on the shores yes. and stuff. And they just like never found them. Okay, this actually just made me feel really good. It just gave me a morale boost because I was like, did I did I pick a good topic yeah. last year? Like it's memorable. Yeah, that was. Okay, good. All right. See, so I don't even need to say this, but I wrote it down. So I'm going to say it anyway. I was just assuming nobody would remember that episode. Um, so I was going to say in that episode, we learned about the story of the Rouse Simmons, a large ship that hauled Christmas trees across Lake Michigan to the people of Chicago. Then the ship sank in a storm, and now there's a ghost ship with a haunted crew cruising around Lake Michigan around Christmas each year. Yes. Now, if you want to learn more about that episode, there's no time to explain. There's way more haunted shit to that story, but you should go back and listen to episode 93 if you're interested. But my point of bringing this up is that in that episode, we learned about a website called wisconsinshipwrecks.org that has a cool interactive map where you can find different historic shipwrecks and their locations and photos and videos of scuba divers who have dived them um, because these shipwrecks are still resting on the bottom of the Great Lakes along Wisconsin shoreline. Now, this thought, which I re-remembered, um, started me down a series of rabbit holes that ultimately led me to a very creepy shipwreck story that I'm going to tell you about today. But before we get to that, let me first take you down a separate but related rabbit hole that's only going to be about five minutes in length, but has now spawned a new phobia for me. Um, have you ever heard, Natalia, of something called submechanophobia? No, but is it when you're afraid of going underwater in like a mechanical submarine? That's a great guess. Um, or are you afraid of being someone submissive who's a robot? I'm wow, I'm also afraid of that. So <laughs> yes, yes to both of those things. But while researching the story I'm going to tell you today, I ended up in this little rabbit hole on a subreddit called r slash submechanophobia. And after looking at the pictures on that subreddit, I literally felt a pit in my stomach that I have never felt before. And I felt like I was going to throw up. And I didn't even know this phobia existed, but I definitely have it. Now, according to Wikipedia, the word submechanophobia comes from the Latin word sub, which means under and the ancient Greek word mechane, which means machine. Submechanophobia is the fear of submerged man-made objects, either partially or entirely underwater. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. This is a stupid as fuck phobia. No, Why? I'm going to show you I'm going to show you pictures, I'm going to show you videos. If you do not feel so uncomfortable by them, then you are a robot. Okay. Okay. We'll find out. Then maybe you are related to these submerged underwater man-made objects. My name's Optimus Prime. Yes. Yeah. Yes. These objects could be shipwrecks, statues, animatronics from old theme parks, old buildings, and even mundane items such as buoys and miscellaneous debris. And once I read this, my whole life started to make sense to me because I have always been irrationally frightened of buoys. 
Okay, but buoys are gross because they like have all yes. that slimy stuff on them. They're but, gross, but yeah. also they're scary. They're like so big, like you think they're small and then you get up right up next to one and it's like, I can't see where the bottom is. I can only see the top and it's so big and it's creepy and like, I feel like it's going to pull me or suck me under. Yeah, you lost me. Okay, <laughs> well, Natalia, let me just show you some of the top posts okay, from r slash submechanophobia and let me know if you feel anything while looking at them. This first one that I'm going to text you comes from user u slash 1091 drawdy who posted a picture of an underwater man-made object. I'm not going to spoil it for you. So tell me, tell me how you feel about this. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, this is scary, but (sighs) first just describe it. All right. I don't want to get too combative at this hour (laughs) of the day, but this is a photo on, um, of two scuba divers and they're in front of like a giant underwater shark statue but it's like a scary shark with like big like creepy teeth it's like a and the water's murky and stuff um like i said i'm i'm unwilling to be this combative at this time of the morning but this is just a scary shark this is not more scary because it's under the water no i cannot describe to you like it makes me want to cry if i saw that statue like on land I would be like, who gives a shit? But under the water, it like make it like looking at it for too long makes me tear up. Yeah, I don't have that uh, button. So I guess I'm I guess I'm just not a sub mechanophobic. Well, you guys, if you want to see if you're a sub mechanophobic, go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram and take a look at these photos that I'm showing Natalia. This first one, like I said, was posted by a user on Reddit by the name of 1091 Drawdy. And the caption is underwater shark statue at Lake Neuchâtel, which is in Switzerland. And like Natalia said, it is a creepy as fuck photo of a statue that somebody just decided to put at the bottom of a lake. And now you can swim down there and see it. Let's move on to the next one. This next one was posted by user Mushroots. And it shows the before and after of something. I want to see if you recognize it. Oh, well, I guess it's in the caption. So you're going to recognize it. I didn't even have to look at the caption. I know exactly what that is. That is the parlor from the Titanic. Exactly. Okay. So look at the before and after. Does that after make you uneasy? Yeah. I mean, but because it's the Titanic, because I know it's like deep underwater and I know what happened there. Right, so it and has it, bad vibes. Yeah, and I don't like... There's like this... Um, did you guys... I've actually been looking into the Titanic recently because I wanted to do an episode on it, but it's hard to get through it for obvious reasons. But did you guys know that the Titanic in like 20 years isn't going to be there anymore because there's this rust-eating bacteria on it? And that's what? what you see. Those like things that look like Cheetos hanging from the ceiling and stuff. It's like eating the Titanic and it's going to be gone. Well, that adds another layer of just like horrifying. Right. Well, don't like that. But so we can agree that that one is scary, right? But your argument is it's scary because we know the history. Like we know what happened to it. Well, it's also just gross looking because it's got all that shit on it. All right. Okay. Let me send you another one. It was scary looking before. It looked haunted as fuck before. That's true. All right. I just sent you another one. This next one was posted by a user by the name of Sexy Cat DMB Dog. Okay. So this gives me, this gives me claustrophobia. This is, I understand, is scary. Okay, so this is a photo of a shipping container that's at the bottom of the ocean. And this gives me anxiety because I think of how quickly that thing sinks and just like being trapped in it and drowning in it. 
I think that's part of the phobia, though. Yeah, of you know? drowning. Yeah, well, well, because it's not logical. Like, neither of us are inside of this shipping container, right? Like, yeah. we're not down there exploring it. But looking at the photo, like, is creepy. I have a scary, I have a creep story to tell you. Okay, tell me, and then I'll finish showing you these photos. My, the guy that's, like, breaking my bitch horse right uh-huh. now, he went to Catalina this weekend. I, like, texted him, and I was like, hey, can you send me photos of my bitch horse? Like, I hate that guy, but I need to make sure he's okay. Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, send me a picture of him, like, on a boat going to Catalina. And uh, he was like, I'm in Catalina all weekend. Great. So then I saw him the following Monday, and I was like, how was Catalina? And he kind of got quiet, and he was like, it was crazy. And I was like, oh, wow, you guys got rowdy? And he was like four boats down from me (gasps) while tied to like in the slip to a mooring a boat sank and i was like oh my god yes a sank (gasps) in the middle of the night and one woman drowned because she was like had locked the door to her room that she was sleeping in natalia and the people like these two other guys that were on the boat like were banging on her door and screaming at like four o'clock in the morning, just screaming. And you hear them like, ah, someone help. And other people from other boats woke up and like come running over. They see this boat is like half submerged in the water and they're trying desperately to open this door and the woman's not responding. They're just yelling her name and she ended up drowning and they like found her body in there. So I don't know if she'd like taken sleeping medication or something. Or been drunk or something. I don't know. That is fucking terrifying. Right? That's, and if, uh, um, well, interesting that you should talk about a sinking boat. Um, I'm sending you something to look at right now. This next one is a video posted by a user by the name of 417 Lauren C. And I will let you describe this one because it made my skin just crawl like there were crickets underneath. No, that I have a fear of that crickets under my skin. Okay, I'm don't ever do mess. How creepy is that though? That that guy was just like on vacation, and now he has to live with that for the rest of his life, being like, "Oh, I just heard these people screaming, and someone died." This is a, see, like that's why I just moved on after you said that because <laughs> I that is insane. Like I need to process that. I'm like sweating. I've already this th- today's episode is already so scary to me, and then to hear a real life thing that I'm like two degrees separated from is horrifying. Yeah, this bothers me. Um, it's basically what I just described. So it's a video of a guy in Norway, and he's, like, looking out over the ocean. It's beautiful. And the camera just pans over to, like, the side of the dock, and there's a rope. And the rope is, like, leading down to a boat that's just <sighs> sunk, like, probably 10 feet under so you can see it. And it's, but like, it's on, its on its side. Yeah, and it's oh. still tied to the dock. And it's, like, fully intact, too, which somehow is worse to me. Like, it looks like it's in a mirror universe or something. Okay, now let me show you this last one. This last one um, that I'm going to show you was posted by a user going by the name General Isimo. And I'd like you to also read the caption that he put because it just really ties it all together for me. It says, hey, let's swim out to those buoys. And then there's like four buoys and you look underneath them and just like right below the surface, there's like a sunken yacht. It's so scary. It's or so scary. Is it a plane? What is I that? I don't know. I don't know. I actually think that might be a plane. It I, might be a fuselage. I, uh, it makes me so uncomfortable because I can just imagine like, hey, you're like swimming in this beautiful lake or ocean. Yeah, that's terrifying. And your friend's like, hey, race you around the buoys. And you don't understand that these buoys are marking a submerged plane or boat. Where people definitely died. Yes. And you're going to go right over. I'm like, I'm about to start crying. 
I don't like um, nature at all for many reasons, and like this is one of them. But why do why do you think I agree? Why do you think that submerged objects? are so fucking scary to some people like do you have a theory like put yourself in i know you i know it doesn't do it for you but like put yourself in the shoes of someone with this phobia like why do you think it's it could be so scary to people because i think it's like the idea of something it's like the same reason that like children who are haunted are more haunted than adults who are haunted because it's like it goes against what we expect. Like water is supposed to be water. Planes are supposed to be in the sky. Boats are supposed to be on top of the water. When you see them not there, that's bad. And it's. A, yes, yeah, I totally like. agree. It's like it's it's just super out of place, which and unexpected. And right. it like makes you scared. But I. I was like, is that why it's scary? I don't even know. Like, why some saw, of these creep me out. If you saw, like, part of a broken ship, like a rocket ship that was just floating out in space, like in the empty, vacuous part of space, would that be the same feeling for you? I don't know. It's harder for me to conceptualize space, I think. Mm. Like, space is really fucking cool as a concept, but do I think that, like... I would survive shooting up there in a rocket? No, I think I'd die from like the G forces and like a heart attack. And so I don't know that I can even conceptualize what it would be like to be in space. I guess though, when I look at videos of like astronauts up there, because you know, they'll, they'll take videos floating yeah. around. That doesn't scare me. Really? It does. I scare. I don't like it. You don't like it? So, okay. See, so different people have different phobias, but I decided to look up what Wikipedia had to say about why this fear exists, because it does seem like a really dumb fear on the yeah. face of it like how it's an object like it can't hurt you you know like it would make sense if you if i was afraid of like a real shark in the water right mm -hmm. but a real shark in the water i think is less scary actually than that fucking creepy statue right so this is what wikipedia had to say quote while a fear of water known as aquaphobia or a fear of sharks known as galeophobia are rational fears that can be linked to understandable reasons, submechanophobia can be triggered by harmless objects which cannot reasonably cause harm to the sufferer. Many submechanophobics do not attribute the development of their phobia to any specific experience or traumatic memory. In fact, most claim that their symptoms arose after a lifetime of contact with these triggers. There are several proposed causes of submechanophobia, though none are proven. Submechanophobia could be caused by a fear of the unknown and the common terror of not knowing what lies beneath the waterline. Objects could be visually distorted by water and its movement, which could make them seem alive and thus possibly harmful. However, submechanophobia by definition only concerns artificial man-made creations, not living creatures. A suggested explanation is that the human mind instinctively detects a foreign object in an otherwise natural environment, and this triggers a fight-or-flight response, as humans respond negatively to that which is outside the norm. That actually makes a lot of sense. I could see that. Like, as a human, we're kind of, like, programmed to survive by scanning the water. Like, are there rocks? You know, you're in the snow. Before I take a step, like, I'm looking around. Is there something sharp? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so this kind of grows out of that innate fear of things that are hidden that could, like, 
that things that are hidden. Yeah. For some reason, we don't know yet. Bad feng shui. Could that mm-hmm. not be another explanation? Seems like very plausible to me. Like, I, you I shouldn't agree. put a vase at the bottom of a pond. You should not. That <laughs> actually, that just also made me want to throw up as you said that. I don't <laughs> like that. Okay. So now that we're done with this terrifying rabbit hole that literally made me sick, let's talk about one of the most common objects that can induce submechanophobia submerged boats aka shipwrecks Mm. this is on that subreddit and on that on the wikipedia page for submechanophobia over and over again the most talked about thing are shipwrecks Mm. because it's one of the most common man-made objects to find under the ocean Mm -hmm. like i said at the top of the show last year i did an episode about a shipwreck on lake michigan lake michigan is one of the five great lakes located in the mid-east region of north america along the canadian american border These five great lakes are Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Erie, and Lake Ontario. And I'll post a map of these lakes to our Instagram for those who want to take a look. Natalia, go ahead and just briefly describe it for our audio listeners. So the five great lakes are essentially on the border of the U.S. and Canada, Uh, except for Lake Michigan. It kind of like comes down and makes Michigan look like that mitten. So the Great Lakes, if you guys are imagining them from left to right as if you're reading a book, they go in this order. Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. And they're really big. Like Lake Michigan and Lake Huron are bigger than Michigan, basically. I'm glad you brought that up because they're enormous. Um, Lake Superior borders Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Lake Michigan borders Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. Lake Erie borders Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York, and Lake Ontario borders New York. And then they all kind of also have borders, or most of them also have borders on Canada. So these are huge. Like, they're spanning several states. And the largest of these lakes is Lake Superior, which is fitting because its name is Superior. Last December, we talked about the Rouse Simmons, which shipwrecked in the middle of Lake Michigan and is still located on Lake Michigan's floor today. For today's episode, I'm going to talk about another shipwreck found off of Wisconsin's coast, the SS Kamloops. What? Have you ever heard of this shipwreck? Kamloops? K-A-M-L-O-O-P-S. One word. No. Where is it? It is located in Lake Superior, and I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to explain to you what's going on with the SS Kamloops. I'm glad you've never heard of it because I had never heard of it either until very recently when I went down this rabbit hole about submechanophobia. And then I remembered the Wisconsin Shipwrecks website from last December, and I was like, wow, I am going to see what I can find out about the SS Kamloops on that website. Now, When I got to that website, I scrolled through the names of all the shipwrecks listed in alphabetical order known to have sunk in Lake Superior, and to my surprise, the Kamloops was not listed among them. And then that's when I fell down another rabbit hole about how this shipwreck is so controversial that scuba explorers are no longer allowed to dive there and tourism in any form is discouraged. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked, but before we go down that side quest, let's first talk about where the remains of the Kamloops are resting. Lake Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes of North America and the world's largest freshwater lake by surface area, containing 10% of the world's surface freshwater. 
What? Oh, wow. That's a good factoid. It is a good factoid. That's the biggest lake in the world? The world's largest freshwater lake by surface area, not by volume. It's the third largest by volume. It straddles the Canada-United States border with the province of Ontario to the north and the states of Minnesota to the northwest and Wisconsin and Michigan to the south. Lake Superior is nicknamed the Graveyard of the Great Lakes and is considered to be in the top 10 for most haunted lakes in the world. What? I love haunted lakes. One of the reasons for this designation is due to Lake Superior's unpredictability. One of the ways that this unpredictability manifests itself is in the form of rogue waves, which are typically only found in the ocean. Natalia, do you know what a rogue wave is? I'm just going to guess. It's a wave that comes out of nowhere. It can't be tamed. Exactly. So according to Wikipedia, rogue waves, also known as freak waves, monster waves, episodic waves, killer waves, extreme waves, and abnormal waves are unusually large, unpredictable, and suddenly appearing surface waves that can be extremely dangerous to ships, even very large ones. A rogue wave appearing on a shoreline is sometimes referred to as a sneaker wave. These types of waves usually only show up in the ocean, but Lake Superior is one of the few lakes to also experience this phenomenon. In the fall and winter, it is not uncommon for Lake Superior to experience storms with winds in excess of 80 miles an hour and rogue waves that can reach up to 30 feet in height. What? What causes the rogue wave? Nobody knows. That's what also makes it haunted. So a rogue... Sea monster? So, yes. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. But when I was researching this little tiny tidbit that I didn't, didn't go super deep into because it's interesting, but it's not like the purpose of the story. But when I was reading about rogue waves, they were basically saying that if a rogue wave... Um, is in an ocean, it's normally caused by like earthquakes or like a hurricane forming. But in lakes, they're like, there's so many different factors that they're just not sure what it could be. Another reason why Lake Superior is considered to be one of the most haunted lakes of all time is due to the insanely high number of unrecovered shipwrecks with bodies still inside that litter the lake floor. The most famous of all of these bodies is known as Old Whitey. And it's found inside the engine room of the SS Kamloops, which sank on the Canadian side of Lake Superior in the 1920s and has never been removed. If you can see it, why don't people take it out? This is where I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's a very controversial subject. And we'll get into that at the end after I tell you the story. But I'm very curious after you hear the story to figure out, like, what do you think about why the body hasn't been removed. Because as I was learning about the story and researching it, to me personally, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, I know a very limited amount about scuba diving. And what I do know is that having your uh, ha- like having your license or whatever, your permit to go into shipwrecks is super, super rare because it's really, really dangerous. And I know that like cave diving and shipwreck diving are like the most fucked up types of diving where the most people die because what ends up happening is it's super dark and in a shipwreck you can't see like front and back like you you if it's a large shipwreck you might not know where you came in you might not know how to get back out you might get tangled and stuff yeah debris yeah because if you've never scuba dive you have to wear this giant fucking vest that's like huge and it has all the shit on it and when you're scuba diving like out in the open water in the ocean like looking at corals and fucking turtles and shit you don't really notice it but when you're now having to go through like little tunnels and tiny doorways <sighs> and caves and stuff like 
you're maintaining your buoyancy so that you don't hit the bottom and don't hit the top is super, super, super important. And it's, and it's pretty difficult to do. So I can imagine that perhaps the only reason it hasn't been taken out is because it would be too difficult to do it. But at the same time, if someone can get down there, what's keeping them from taking a fucking harpoon that you would kill a fish with, right? And like harpooning the thing and dragging it out <laughs> with a rope behind them, like towing it. You well, know? especially for a body that's been there since the 1920s, I feel like there have been so many opportunities for someone to get this body out, right? Yeah. Well, but we'll talk about more about that in a little bit. But I'm glad you brought up how dangerous shipwrecks are because yet another factor that makes all of these shipwrecks at the bottom of this lake so unnerving and scary. And we kind of talked about this during um, our Lake Lanier episode where it's like you could be swimming Mm -hmm. having a grand old flag of a time like on Lake Superior having a barbecue jumping off with your family into the lake swimming around getting back on the boat fishing like doing your thing right and underneath you there could just be a floating corpse inside of the engine room of the SS Kamloops or any other number of shipwrecks. I'm on board. I, there's the, this. Okay, so this is like the opposite of submechanophobia where I'm like, I want to see pictures of this. Right. I know that there's a group of people who are like, oh, wow, this is really sad. It's like someone's father and son and da, da, da. And like, yeah, this is people died there. But I, I also think that, but I want to see photos. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's like a morbid curiosity, yes. right? It's just, it's a very it's like morbid reality yes. on reddit which i was browsing last night and i was like feeling like my fiance sort of like stirred and it was 2 a.m and i was like i really don't want him to wake up and see that i'm like looking at people jumping to their deaths off of the towers oh my god that's what i was doing last night yes we were caught on the same wavelength yes oh my 9 11 videos right yes did you see that video um that that guy posted that was like i took all of the uh, clips and that, put it all together. Yes, and he's like, and YouTube is suppressing it. Right. I ha- I know exactly which one you're watching. Uh, you're talking about. I didn't watch it because my fiance was next to me, but I read all the comments so that I could like live through it. Yeah, like visualize it in your mind. Right. right? And yeah. I'm gonna watch it later. I only made it about like halfway through, and That's I had to shut it hard. off. It was. Well, they talk about. Like all the comments were talking about how there's like a reporter and they're standing and uh, while they're talking, you can just hear like thuds of bodies yes. like hitting the uh, roof above them. Well, I watched it with the sound off, but I do remember that from that um, documentary that you and I have seen. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. Ugh. Anyway, so similar thing like you know morbid i think part of it also is history though right like Mm -hmm. if we don't ever acknowledge these darker sadder parts of history then in a way are aren't we like kind of doing a disservice to the people that lost their lives i think so yeah i think so too yeah i think so now there are thought to be around 400 wrecked ships still lying at the bottom of lake superior along with a medley of wrecked airplanes crashed cars and even a few old dilapidated houses the bottom of lake superior hovers around 32 to 39 degrees fahrenheit making it too cold for most plants and animals to survive at its deepest points The lake is also so deep that sunlight does not penetrate to the bottom, and many areas of the lake have deep crevices that are not navigable to humans. As a result, bodies from those people who are unfortunate enough to drown in the lake are rarely found or recovered. 
and it is estimated, and I don't know if this is bullshit or not, but I found one source that estimated that the lake has over 20,000 corpses in it. What? I, that's why I'm like, is this... That is terrifying. Is this like a fuck... Like, is this just like someone making it up but it was on like a legit website so it's 35 degrees down there yeah uh, yeah between 32 to 39 degrees depending on the season and how deep you're going down yeah that's really cold i've been doing this cold plunge thing and it's at 40 degrees and it's fucking horrible and and there are no dead bodies in that yeah exactly except for maybe yours if you get too cold right right but that's a problem for someone else not you Yeah, so think about, like, just 20,000 frozen old corpses just floating around in the dark crevices of this lake while at the surface people are, like, buzzing around on speedboats and jet skis. This is, ju- this is like, bringing up a horrifying memory I have as a child that I didn't realize was so traumatic at the time, but now it's explaining a lot. I used to have a 55-gallon aquarium in my room, and um, it was a freshwater aquarium, and I, as a child, just, like, would go to PetSmart all the time and just get random fish and put them in there, even if they were like, oh, this one doesn't... Like, they were like, don't put the beta in there because, like, they yeah, don't... they fight, They right? fight and whatever, but I was like, I'm not going to keep this guy in, like, this fucking jar. This is sad, right? Right. So I put him in there and he flourished. Life was wow. good for him. He was doing great. He was going around. All of my other like fish were checking him out. Um, but then one day I woke up and he was dead and he like all of the color had gone out of him and no. all of the other fishes were just like eating his like <gasps> tail and stuff. And I was like, what happened overnight? You know, his like eyes were gone. Everything was gone. And all of the color had drained out of him. He was like this beautiful, like red thing. And yeah. And so I don't know. For some reason, I'm just picturing the corpses are like that bloated and like kind of like like pale and like things have kind of eaten at them a little bit. Totally. And remember in the Lake Michigan episode, we talked about how like lampreys have invaded some of these lakes. And so just imagine like a lamprey swimming along and just eating the eyes out of a corpse. Ah, no, I will not. So let's talk about the most famous of these corpses, which apparently there's 20,000 of them according to one source. Yes, I mentioned it earlier, Old Whitey. Old Whitey's story begins in Canada. I'm already like super fucking sweaty and scared and uncomfortable and and we're like not into the meat of, of Old Whitey yet. Yeah, oh, oh the meat. I didn't mean it like that. I'm crouching right now. I'm like gonna There's a seat and I'm sitting up. on my feet. And like, like a gargoyle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm like literally in a gargoyle. It's fight or flight, right? right? <laughs> like you're ready to spring up. I didn't even realize I was sitting like this until I just was. In 1845 a private shipping company known as Canada Steamship Lines, or CSL, was founded as a way to ship commerce up and down the St. Lawrence River. As Canada's canal systems on the river expanded, so would CSL's business. Eventually, CSL also began operating on the Great Lakes after the construction of the Welland Canal, which connected Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. So I'm, I printed out this map because I think it helps. When I was like researching the story, I kept yeah. having to refer to this map. So I'm just going to pin it up yeah, here. Yeah, do it. And then for people who are listening to this, um, you can just refer to the map that I have posted to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. During World War I and World War II, CSL flourished while transporting iron ore to steel mills in Canada and coal from Pennsylvania to Canadian railways. CSL has had many notable maritime tragedies on its ships during the 1900s. 
For example, in September of 1949, a fire broke out on CSL's SS Neuronic in Toronto Harbor. According to Wikipedia, the fire swept through the ship, killing between 118 to 139 passengers. Many of them were killed while they were sleeping. But no members of the crew were killed. Inadequate alarms, inadequate passenger evacuation plans, and neglected extinguishing systems were found to be at fault. The captain was even suspended for one year for abandoning the ship before ensuring that the crew and passengers were safely off. This was such a tragic incident that occurred that even though the ship was salvageable, CSL just decided to demolish it in 1950. Yeah, good for them because we, in our episode that we did... Uh, where I talked about Lake Okeechobee. Yeah. They just, like, took plane wreck and made it into a new plane. I cannot. And then there were ghosts. I cannot. Yes, you're right. So on one hand, like, yay CSL for just trashing the ship. But on the other hand, there's this conspiracy theory that because the crew all made it off safely and not the people... They think, like, maybe uh, an inquest was going to be, like, held and, like, a super intense investigation about why that was. They would find them at fault. Yeah, so they were like, fuck it, we're just going to destroy this ship. That way, like, we're not going to be found criminally negligent and we just have to, like, pay out to, like, the families of the people that died, but that's it. Yeah. You know, like, their life isn't going to be ruined. So that's, that's the conspiracy theory side of it. And in a similar incident, like, you think CSL would have learned from this, but they didn't. Uh, Their passenger ship, the Quebec, would also catch on fire in 1950, but this time only seven passengers were killed. Another one of CSL's famous ships was the SS Kamloops. The Kamloops was a steamship originally built in the United Kingdom and later sailed to Canada. It was considered small for a steamship with a length of only 250 feet or 75 meters. Launched in 1924, the Kamloops was built small in order to fit inside the canals of the Lower Great Lakes and St. Lawrence River. The ship operated via a steam engine and had two rigged masts. So I'm showing Natalia right now a map of the Great Lakes. And as you can see, we've already talked about these Great Lakes are on the border, literally, of Canada and the United States. Now, there's also a series of channels Mm. that are man-made that go from the ocean into the Great Lakes. Right. Wow. So on that far right side where you can see like that little channel, that's one of these channels. And then here we see the St. Marie. It says the Salt St. Marie. Mm Mm-hmm. That is another one of these channels. Okay. So... They go to the Atlantic. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a giant um, trade route, essentially. Yeah. And because at the time, these like little channels were so like thin, these ships had to be built like pretty skinny to fit through. Since then, they've like been expanded. And I think they were expanded like in the 30s or 40s. But at the time that this story takes place, they're pretty skinny. Ew, I don't like the idea of a skinny boat. Yeah, it me neither. Like, it's going to crack in yeah. half. Yeah, it doesn't seem seaworthy. Right. And the weird name was given to the SS Kamloops by this lady named Agnes Black. She was the daughter of Canada Steamship Line Superintendent. Um, but I couldn't find anything referencing like why she picked that name. 
I've, all the articles I read just say that she is the one that named it. On July 5th, 1924, the Kamloops completed its sea testing in the United Kingdom and was shipped to Denmark to pick up freight before being taken to Montreal and later Michigan. In the 1920s, it's important to remember that Canada was still part of the British Empire and Canada was still expanding its provinces and relying heavily on manufactured goods from England in order to do so. Oh, I forgot about Canada. I know. So it's easy to do. Yeah. I love all of our Canadian listeners, but you guys are so demure that sometimes you forget. Like oh. the history is pretty recent. Right. Yeah. It's super, super recent. Yeah. The 1920s, not that long ago at all. So because Canada was still expanding and they were part of the British Empire, it was pretty normal for ships to like go out to England and then come back to Canada with food and materials, like building materials. As such, the Kamloops was an extremely important element to this trade system because when large seafaring ships brought goods from Britain to Canada, these goods would then be moved up and down the skinny canals using lake faring ships like the Kamloops. Hmm. In July of 1924, a description of the Kamloops was published in Canadian Railway and Marine World publication on page 370, which I'm like, how many publications mm -hmm. could there have possibly been and how large were they and like how frequently were they published? A lot, apparently. A apparently 370 pages worth just in July of 1924. Yeah. So this is what they had to say, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to give our listeners an idea of what this ship looked like. Quote, Kamloops is built on the longitudinal system of framing with upper shelter and forecastle decks. The double bottom extending all fore and aft and the peak tanks are arranged for water ballast and a watertight cofferdam is fitted at the sides of the forehold to give added protection to the cargo to meet the severe conditions of the service. The captain's accommodation and chart room are in-house at the forecastle deck with the steering wheel in the Team Texas house above. Special attention has been given to the accommodations for the officers and crew in the forecastle and engineers and firemen in the deck house aft. The whole of the accommodation is heated by steam radiators and electric lighting is to be installed. A powerful steam windlass is fitted in the forecastle, and special pockets are arranged in the hold to house the anchors. The cargo gear, consisting of four Samson posts, each having a 5-ton derrick, is operated by one 8x12-inch and two 7x10-inch steam cargo winches, and mooring arrangements are carried out by means of four 6x10-inch steam mooring winches. A hoisting gear consisting of 13 winches driven through shafting by a double-cylinder vertical steam engine will be fitted in the upper tween decks for discharging cargo. A steam steering gear will be fitted in the after tween decks and controlled by shafting from the wheelhouse forward and boat deck aft. The propelling machinery consists of a set of triple expansion inverted marine engines having cylinders of 18, 30, and 50 inch diameters and a stroke of 36 inches. Steam is supplied by two single-ended boilers, 13.6 feet in diameter by 11 feet long, working at a pressure of 185 pounds. Now, do I know what any of that means? No, but it sounds like this was like a high-tech right. ship for its time. Right, yeah. It was had electricity running throughout it. It was like heated by steam. 
It seems like they were pretty proud of the aft and the four decks. Right. Well, and I would assume that CSL is who gives this, like, statement to right. this publication. So clearly they would have only put things that make them look good, especially after all of these tragedies that there are right. other boats that have. Now, some of you may remember in our episode on the Rouse Simmons that the Great Lakes freeze during the winter months. And for this reason, most ships stop operating during winter. Since most ships weren't willing to take the risk during these hazardous icy conditions, those ships that did choose to operate right up until winter were typically able to make more money since the trips were more hazardous. Do you remember this from our Christmas tree yeah, episode? Yeah, I do remember. And that's why they were like, oh, okay, let's just go out in the storm. It's fine. Right. It's tempting because yeah. if you're one of only three ships willing to make this journey, you might be like set. For, for the whole year. Yeah, for the whole year. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Totally. The Kamloops was one of these ships that was willing to go out later than the rest. According to NPS.gov, in 1924, the Kamloops was one of the last vessels to pass through the Sault Ste. Marie Canal, later becoming trapped by ice in the St. Mary's River, and two tugboats of the Great Lakes Towing Company had to be dispatched to assist them. During this incident, winds were said to be blowing between 50 to 60 miles per hour at a temperature of only 6 degrees Fahrenheit. In 1926, the Kamloops again ended the season stuck in the ice in St. Mary's River as the owner of the ship had the goal of operating the Kamloops as long as possible each season. In this incident, the wind was said to be blowing at 35 miles an hour with a temperature of negative 12 degrees Fahrenheit. On December 5th, while the ship was stuck in the ice, seven inches of snow fell down on top of the ship while it had nowhere to go, and supplies of coal were dwindling. After being trapped in the ice for nine days, the Kamloops was finally freed, again by the same towing rescue tugboats. Those towing rescue tugboats are like, can you guys just chill? But I guess, again, maybe they're like, it's business. Right, you yeah. Know? Like, they wouldn't be relevant or needed if nobody sailed in December. Getting trapped in the ice is not good. As we know from other episodes we've done, that's usually what resort, like, what ends up leading to cannibalism. Absolutely. And in that incident, I was reading about it, and they weren't the only ships stuck in the ice. There were apparently, like, 100 ships that were stuck in the ice in varying degrees of distress because some were closer to land, others weren't. Some got pulled out by the tugboats first, others weren't. And the Kamloops was one of the final ships to be pulled out because based on how early you started your journey like dictated when you got stuck so people who weren't trying to be out there on a suicide mission in december maybe they got stuck at the end of november and they would be pulled out sooner right that makes sense so basically like csl this canadian ship owner manufacturer company they were just like kind of balls to the wall about everything like as we can see two of their ships caught on fire and they were like oh well you know like we're gonna just keep the cost going of doing business exactly exactly it was totally considered the cost of doing business and so they even though the Kamloops had been stuck in the ice twice before and the last time was actually really dangerous like the ship when it was recovered was just totally covered in ice seven inches of snow negative 12 degrees Fahrenheit the crew had was like almost out of supplies and almost out of coal and then had to be like broken out of this ice with this these tugboat rescue missions even after that Seattle SL was like, cost of doing business, who gives a shit, we're going to keep going out later than everybody else. 
On its final voyage, the Kamloops set out in late November of 1927 from Montreal with the intent of crossing Lake Superior with a destination of Fort William, Ontario. Mm -hmm. So I am going to show you a map of these two points to describe to our audience. I'm going to text it to you. Okay. How long does it take to cross Lake Superior? Damn it. I didn't look that up. Um, I would say, you know what I would say? Based on this story, I would say a week maximum. Wow, that's a lot longer than I thought. Yeah. So, and that, I think it would be less time if they were going not during winter. Okay, so Port William is on the northern shore of Lake Superior, and the other location is on, like, the, the most southern, uh, like, the southern... Yeah, the southernmost point. So you're basically traveling across the longest width of Lake Superior. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And the map of Lake Superior, which you guys can see at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram, you can see like a couple of little islands dotted around on the lake. Um, The largest of them is called Isle Royale, and it's sort of near Port William, um, which is the final destination of the SS Kamloops. Final destination. Dun, dun, dun. Because of the disastrous experience of the previous year where many ships, not just the Kamloops, got stuck in the ice and had to be rescued, insurance companies had decided to raise their rates at midnight on November 30th, reflecting the increased risk of late season navigation. So after all these ships got stuck in the ice and a lot of ships were lost and like people were injured and some people died and stuff like that. The insurance companies were like, we're fucking sick of paying out just because you, the company, want to take the risk. We're going to make sure that following November 30th, the rates are going to go up Mm -hmm. if you want to keep sailing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Captain by a man named William Bryan, the Kamloops was carrying a mixed cargo of tar paper, paper making machinery, coiled wire for farm fencing, piping, shoes, and a variety of foodstuffs. The Kamloops journey began without incident, clearing Port Colborne, Ontario on the Welland Canal on December 1st at 9.30 a.m. It was following in the wake of a larger ship, the SS Quedoc, an empty grain carrier whose destination was also Fort William. Passing through the St. Mary's River without incident, the Kamloops officially entered Lake Superior's cold waters on December 4th. Captain William Bryan wrote to his wife while passing through St. Marie, writing that the weather was very bad and he was going to anchor his ship. In this same letter, the captain also told his wife to expect him home by December 10th. Shortly after sailing into Whitefish Bay, which you can see on that map there, the ship entered tumultuous waters as a howling northern gale picked up on the lake on December 5th. This same day, insurance companies announced that they would yet again be raising their rates, with storm warnings in effect for all ships in the Lake Superior area. The rise in insurance rates caused shipping companies to panic, trying to get all of their ships out onto the waters of Lake Superior to their final destinations before the insurance hike went into effect after December 5th. The Kamloops, along with other ships, remained anchored at Whitefish Bay in the hopes that the gale would soon cease and the journey could continue. Meanwhile, the ships anchored in the bay would soon see another ship, 
the Booth Fisheries steamer America traveling through the bay on its way back from Fort Williams, carrying a cargo of salted herring. The ship reportedly looked like a ghost as it was completely covered in thick crusts of ice and icicles hanging off of all of its exterior, making it look completely white as it sailed through. The crew of the America called out to the ships docked in the bay that Lake Superior was not safe to navigate, and the temperatures out on the water had registered at negative 40 degrees at one point. What the hell? With frightening storms at various points throughout the journey. On Lake Superior, there's a canal that leads from Lake Huron into Lake Superior. That's the St. Marie Canal. That canal, once it hits Lake Superior, there's a bay yep. called Whitefish, Whitefish bay. bay. See it. And as these ships are docked there, hoping that this storm is going to pass over them, the America comes sailing through, looking like it's beat to fucking hell. Like, the people who are docked in the bay, like, can't believe what they're seeing. Like, they can't believe that the America is still, like, alive and moving. And they say, hey, we just got out of that shit show. Our instruments were showing negative 40 degrees. Like, shit is really bad and intense over there. Do not leave the bay, whatever you do. But these ships that are in the bay are getting pressure from the owners of the shipping companies being like, hey, these insurance hikes are going to increase even more. You guys got to make it to your destination before this final increase goes into effect because otherwise our profits are going to be like basically non-existent. By December 7th, wind began blowing at 20 to 30 miles per hour with temperatures dropping to negative 10 degrees at various ports along the route, meaning it would have been even colder at the center of Lake Superior. By December 8th, the winds reached between 70 to 80 miles per hour, and soon the storm turned into a major blizzard. Temperatures were recorded at negative 38 degrees on the lake, and even those on the land weren't safe, with more than 30 people who lived along the lakeshore losing their lives that winter as a direct result of the blizzard. God, I'm so mad at these idiot people for doing this yeah like imagine how bad it must have been at the center of that fucking lake if people that are in their homes died died yeah like that's how bad the blizzard was that year yeah by december 9th damage reports began filtering into the ports with at least 20 vessels either being reported to be in distress or missing altogether the Kamloops was one of these missing vessels quote the steel package freighter Winnipeg arrived in Port Arthur on Friday the 9th with the news that the crew had seen Kamloops at Whitefish Bay on Tuesday, December 6th. When the storm first broke, Winnipeg had laid up in Whitefish Bay, but left during a lull. At the upper end of the lake, thick fog slowed its progress and an anchor was set. The early morning light revealed that Winnipeg was only a few hundred yards away from rocks and had just narrowly missed becoming a casualty of the storm. Winnipeg arrived in port covered with tons of ice on the deck, white with frost. A crewman of the Winnipeg described his five-day ordeal to Port Arthur News Chronicle in 1927 as follows. I have never seen anything like it in my 20 years of sailing. The storm was bad enough, but to get a combination of gales, fogs, and 20 degrees below zero weather all at the same time is something that has given many a mariner nerves this last few days. So this ship 
mm-hmm. is another one yeah. like the America that makes it to shore. And its crew is like telling people at the ports, like, this is the fucked up shit that's going on out right. there. And people are like, hey, have you seen the Kamloops? Like, we haven't heard from the Kamloops and 19 other ships. Like, we haven't heard from any of these. Have you guys seen any of these? They're asking all the people that are coming into port. And the Winnipeg reports, hey, yeah, we did see the Kamloops out there. Like, they were out there. We know they were. And they were still on their way, on their trajectory to Fort William. Another ship, the Martian, reported having almost collided with the Kamloops during a heavy fog on December 9th. By December 10th, Captain William Bryan's wife began to worry. This was the date that she had expected her husband to come home, but the Kamloops was still missing. She reached out to authorities stationed at the nearby port, who told her that conditions on Lake Superior were rough, and in all likelihood her husband's ship would show up the next day and not to worry. But by December 12th, there was still no news of the fate of the Kamloops, and those stationed at Fort William began to worry. According to publications, at least three other vessels were missing. The Saskatoon, a Canada Steamship Lines package freighter, the Brookton, a bulk freighter also owned by CSL, and the tugboat, the Champlain. All but the Kamloops would soon be located. News of another victim of the storm circulated. The Lambton, a steel canaler similar to the Kamloops, was discovered wrecked on the Parisian island in Lake Superior. The ordeal of the survivors of the wrecked vessel Altadoc, Agawa, and Lambton gave a view of the conditions that the Kamloops faced. The Coast Guard dory that attempted to remove the Altadoc's crew became frozen in the ice and was freed only after 16 attempts by the cutter Crawford to break a lane to the boat Agawa's crew was trapped aboard without food or heat for three days, and during that time the stranded vessel was covered with ice four to six feet thick. Four to six feet of ice, not snow, on the deck of the ship. Oh my god, with no food and no water? And no heat. The captain, who retired early after that voyage, reported being battered by 40-foot waves that swept away the smokestack spars and top deck of his vessel wow so a wave literally took off the top of a their rogue boat. wave oh that's terrifying i just got the chills yeah a rogue wave so not only are they in fog so thick that they don't even see where they're going not only do they have six feet of ice on their decks not only are they out of food and water and heat but also a rogue wave has come and just knocked off half of the top half of their boat And so after they were rescued, the captain is like, I can't fucking believe I made it out of this alive. I'm retiring. Two suicides were even reported aboard the Lambton by crew members who were unable to withstand the severe conditions. These deaths, which were recorded and reported as suicides, may have been attempts to swim to shore, although any sailor would know that that would be certain death. So conditions were so bad. Like we were just talking about the 9-11 videos where... People, the conditions were so bad in the towers that people were literally they probably jumping. got hypothermia, those people that tried to like jump off the boat and swim. It could have been. Or they yeah. were just like, they. it was so fucking bad on yeah. that boat that they were like, I know I'm not going to live mm-hmm. on this boat. Or they. that's how they felt. They're like, my only hope is to jump. Right. And so there were at least two people that were reported to have jumped and died immediately, just like freezing in the water below. A search for Kamloops began in earnest on December 12th. The Islet Prince, commanded by A.E. Fader, began searching the North Shore. 
the government tug the Murray Stewart left from the Sioux Canal to join the search as well. W.J. King, assistant manager of Canada Steamship Lines, or CSL, announced his company was in communication with officials in Ottawa and had requested the use of a government plane to aid the search. Speculation on the whereabouts of the Kamloops centered on Isle Royale, which is that island I mentioned that's super close to the destination. Captain R. Simpson of the Quidoc, which was the ship that the Kamloops was following, mm-hmm. had arrived at the Sioux and discovered Kamloops still on the unreported list. He gave the following account to the Owen Sound Daily Sun-Times on December 13, 1927. Quote, The Quidoc passed upbound December 4th. Beside her was the Kamloops, upbound loaded with package freight, with 20 men aboard, and captained by William Bryan. The Quidoc was leading, and the Kamloops was one quarter of a mile astern. At 10 o'clock Tuesday night, December 6th, the lookout on the steamer Quidoc suddenly saw a dark mass floating in front of them and gave the alert immediately. The Quidoc turned sharply to avoid running head-on into rocks and at the same time blowing the danger signal to the Kamloops. A north gale was blowing, there was a heavy sea, and it was rough going. The visibility was poor on account of frost fog, and it was not known if the Kamloops saw the rock or even heard the signal. The Kamloops has not been seen or heard of since. She had no wireless system aboard. So this ship, the Quidoc, that is kind of like cutting through the water so that the Kamloops can follow behind it, they're in this thick, icy fog in the middle of this storm. They think they're on the right path. But all of a sudden, their lookout is like, holy shit, there's like a giant dark mass that's coming up in front of us. I can see through my fucking telescope. No, it's not the Kamloops. It's a bunch of rocks. They didn't realize they had floated near Isle Royale. Oh. And so they're like, fuck. They're like, they almost crash into Isle Royale. So then maybe the Kamloops behind them crosses into the rocks. So they're like, shit. And they blow their horn and they're like, fuck, we hope the Kamloops hears us. But they can't get a hold of them because CSL was like, we don't want to pay to put a wireless distress system inside this ship that we built. Right. And so they're like, okay, fuck, we hope that they heard us. They're like a quarter mile behind us, so they can't even see them, right? Mm. And they turn at the last minute, barely avoid hitting these rocks, and continue out around Isle Royale, Mm. hoping to make it to port. Now, as the captain of the Quidoc gives this report, he is saying exactly what you just said, which is he thinks perhaps the Kamloops crashed. Yeah, Yeah, crashed at that island. By December 14th, the court of public opinion regarding the possibility of the Kamloops surviving began to diminish. The Coast Guard ended its search in the face of heavy seas and ice on December 16th. The company representing the Kamloops was the only entity remaining positive regarding the search, publicly stating that they believed the ship may have pulled ashore along either Isle Royale or nearby Manitou Island. In a rescue mission attempt, the tugboat the James Whalen left Fort Williams bound for Isle Royale with extra food and supplies in the event that they found the Kamloops. However, on December 21st, the James Whalen sent a telegram which read, quote, We have made a circuit of Isle Royale, finding no trace of the missing steamer. That the Kamloops was flung against some jutting boulder, cracking in two and sinking almost immediately, now appears to be the logical solution to the mystery. 
On December 23rd, a rumor started circulating that the Kamloops had been spotted by some fishermen on Manitou Island. The James Whalen was once, was once again deployed as the public had become extremely invested in the search, with many Canadians writing to their local newspapers accusing the government of not doing enough to find the missing ship. Unfortunately, the James Whalen returned from Manitou Island empty-handed on December 26th, the day after Christmas. They reported having made a complete and thorough search of the island and reported seeing no signs of life other than spotting a wolf and an eagle. All in all, the James Whalen traveled more than 500 miles before the search for the Kamloops was officially ended. The losses of the season were summarized and the Marquette Daily Mining Journal provided a picture of what mariners of the next season might expect. This was published on December 24, 1927. Quote, the bet with the Storm King lost again. The navigation season has come to a close with the wreckage of at least five steamers and hundreds of thousands of bushels of grain wasted on Lake Superior and Lake Huron's bleak waters and shores. One ship, the Kamloops, presumably on the bottom of Lake Superior with 20 men, two women, and valuable cargo, and the expense of another ice blockade on the debit side of the shipping ledger. The fad of last tripping claimed four victims this year, landmarks which will be pointed out in 1928 when the merciless wire ticks out again the order for that last cargo. By January of 1928, the Kamloops and its crew were declared lost, and the process for payment to the widows and children of the crew began. In accordance with Canadian workers' compensation procedures of the time, the wives of the sailors would be paid out a set amount for the loss of their husbands, while the children of the women who were lost on Lake Superior would receive their payout. While we do not know the names of all of the crew aboard the Kamloops that season, the two women aboard the ship were known to be Jeanette Grafton, who was tragically sailing her final season as the first stewardess, and Alice Betteridge, who was only 22 years old and was sailing on only her second season as assistant stewardess. On May 26, 1928, rumors began circulating amongst Lake Superior fishermen again that bodies had been found at Isle Royale. The Calumet News and the Detroit Free Press would both publish articles to this effect, and the U.S. Coast Guard set out to the island. Captain Christensen and Executive Officer Lieutenant Woods of the U.S. Coast Guard would say the following regarding their trip to Isle Royale. Quote, The bodies both wearing life preservers with Kamloops stenciled on them, were reported near 12 o'clock point on the north shore of Isle Royale. They were found along with wreckage of the lost steamer, fragments of superstructure including the top of the wheelhouse, a spar with a flag on which was printed the words Kamloops, and a lifeboat were found in the area between Green Isle and Hawk Island. Captain Christensen stated that the wreckage includes all of the boat's hatches, half a lifeboat, and five or six pairs of oars. The beach is covered with medicine, candy, toothpaste, and other foodstuffs carried by the steamer. The reason the steamer was not found until Saturday was because ice on the little bays is just beginning to melt. Indications are that the steamer Kamloops cannot be very far from Isle Royale. The two bodies, both male, were sent to autopsy in hopes of identifying them. One body was never identified and was subsequently buried in an unmarked grave. 
while the other was thought to be that of J. Journal because they'd found a paycheck bearing that name in his pocket. This body was returned to the family of J. Journal in Quebec for burial. On June 4, 1928, six more bodies of the Kamloops crew were found, again by fishermen. The bodies were so badly decomposed that they weren't identifiable. However, one of the bodies was identified as a woman's. Since there weren't very many women aboard ships in the 1920s, that body was able to eventually be identified as Alice Betteridge through dental records. All of these six bodies were found wearing life vests, just as the first two bodies had been found. Three of the male bodies were eventually identified based on items found in their pockets and were returned to their families, except for one sailor whose family could not be found. The two remaining unidentified sailors and the one identified sailor whose family was unaccounted for were all sent to the same cemetery and buried in the same unmarked grave. A ninth body was later found more inland on the island, away from the shore. This body was identified to be that of Henry Ganest, the first mate. Henry's body was not wearing a life vest, though one was found nearby. <gasps> he survived. Leading some to believe that he must have survived for a while, especially since he was found further inland than the others. Oh my god, he survived, but it was just too cold? Yes, isn't oh. that fucking tragic? Yeah. H.J. Bryan, the brother of Captain Brian Williams, who he himself was also a captain, inspected all of the corpses that had been found and could not identify any of them to be his brother. Because of this, he launched his own rescue mission of Isle Royale in the hopes of finding his brother. His search took place on June 14th and 15th of 1928, and although no more bodies were found, he and his search party did find several makeshift shelters full of candy leading them to believe that others may still be alive somewhere on the island, or at least that they had survived for some time. H.J. Mm -hmm. Bryan also provided information to the Owen Daily Sun-Times in an article published June 20th, 1928, which reads as follows. Quote, Captain Bryan says that in his own search, he found a set of false teeth and a women's wig, which he was informed tallied with Miss Grafton, since Miss Betteridge had natural teeth. The captain thinks that the finding of the wig and teeth would suggest that they were from one of the bodies that had already been recovered. He is of the opinion that one of the bodies having male attire and already buried is that of Miss Grafton of Southampton. Explaining further his belief that many of the crew reached shore alive, Captain Bryan offers the statement that he found articles from the wreckage of the boat carried up onto the shore farther, he says, than they could have been washed by the waves, and also in a condition to suggest that they had been tampered with by human hands. Had these human hands been of the fishermen who remained late on the island, reports of their finding would have early reached the outside world last fall. No such reports have been heard. The articles in question were principally boxes of candy, and the captain believes that some of them were used as food. So after H.J. Bryan gives this quote about how he found a woman's wig and yeah. fake teeth... He's, like, now calling into question, like, how good is the person doing the autopsy? Because one of these bodies should have been Miss Grafton's. Right. Because her items were found on the shore. But this then led to a new theory that is so fucking scary. Apparently, some of the bodies were found with wolf bites on them. I was just going to say, like, I wonder if the survivors were eaten by wolves yes. because they said they found a wolf and if it was like this really really hard storm 
then with I, no food. Right. Then I feel like the wolf would be really hungry. Exactly. I'm like, I, I'm like holding myself in a hug because of how scary that is to me. But so basically one of the theories was that Miss Grafton's body could have been dragged off by a wolf pack and she could have been eaten somewhere on the island. I mean, which would go, I prefer to at least be like eaten by wolves than just like succumb to the elements. Yeah, that's true. I guess after the Donner Party episode. Yeah, I really don't know which one would be worse. I don't know. It's kind of like what we said a few episodes about like the dinosaurs dying. Like there's to me, it's honorable to die at like the hands of like a warrior wolf party. You know? Yeah. Versus, like, if you just drown in your boat, like, that's fucking sad and sucks. That's true. Like, that's a poetic way to look at it. Like, I was bested by a beast of the land versus, like, I was eating candy in a shrub until I died. Right? Yeah. And you go on knowing that, like, your body has now given nourishment to these, like, animals that are just, like, a part of the ecosystem and you're... Maybe that's a good way to rationalize. You're not going to waste. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great point. Like... You know, I have participated in the circle of life and my death isn't for nothing. Exactly. However, being eaten alive by wolves sounds pretty bad. No, too. <laughs> I think I think it's bad, but I'm trying to find the silver <laughs> yes, lining. No, I appreciate that about you. <laughs> like you would rather see an animal like you'd rather see a squirrel get taken by a hawk than just like hit by a car. Okay. Now, although several more search parties were launched, no more bodies were found in 1928. The following year in January of 1929, and this is where it gets one level more crazy. Oh, wow. A trapper named Louis Coutu, who was working trapping animals at the mouth of the Agua River in Ontario, spotted a pickle jar that had washed ashore. At first, he ignored the jar, but his interest was piqued when he saw something rolled up inside of it. Undoing the lid and reaching inside, Coutu found a letter. It was brief and reads as follows. I am the last one alive, freezing and starving on Isle Royale. Oh my God. I just want my mom and dad to know my fate. Alice Betridge, 22 years old. Oh, wow. Does that not make you want to just cry? Oh, I do- oh, that's so sad. That sucks. Yeah, that makes me really sad. I... <sighs> Yeah, it's and and Lake Ontario is so far away from Lake Superior, so that that pickle jar traveled all the way from Lake Superior through Lake Huron through Lake Erie. It actually he Lake found it in Ontario, so we don't know some oh. one little offshoot river. He was at the mouth of the Agua River in Ontario. Okay, that's why I hate like this the world. province. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so it's crazy. It's fucking crazy. It was still really far away, to your point. Like, the Agua River, we can't even see it on this map. Okay, sorry, I have to trauma dump on you. When I was looking at the 9-11 stuff last night, someone was talking about how they were watching a, like, a, a journalist. Like, there was all this paper falling in the sky, and they picked up a piece of paper and, like, looked at it, and written on it, scribbled, was, like, help. There are 12 no. people locked inside an office in, like, the West Tower on the 82nd floor. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, It's it's the same thing. It's like it's too little too late, you know? uh, Yeah, that's what makes it so fucking heartbreaking. I know. And it's just heartbreaking to know that this 22-year-old, her last wish, she knew she was a goner. Right. She was like, I'm the last one alive. Everyone else has either been fucking eaten by wolves or frozen to death or starved to death. I, by some miracle, probably because she was the youngest. Right. Like, she's the last one alive, and she just grabs a pickle jar 
something to write with and a little scrap of paper and just writes, I just want my parents to know what happened to me and then throws it into Lake Superior. And by some miracle, it was found by this trapper mm-hmm. who's along the Agua River, wherever the fuck the that year. is. Yeah, the following year. And at first, like, it's so unbelievable that the public was like, this can't be a real story. Like, this has right, to be made up. It's fake. Yeah. This guy is just looking for clout. Like, he just wants his name in the paper because this... The fate of the Kamloops, like, was this crazy mystery that everybody was trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So this letter was then shown to the family of Alice Betridge, and unfortunately, they positively identified it was her handwriting, without a doubt. Apparently, she had a very mm. distinct way of writing. And the family actually kept this letter for generations. But in the most recent interview I found of like a distant relative of Alice Betridge, they said that they don't know what happened to the letter. They think that like it was too painful and at some point someone destroyed it. Mm. Tragically, the SS Kamloops was never found. Still? That is until 50 years later when Minneapolis sport diver Ken Engelbrecht spotted something dark and shadowy beneath him in the water while diving deep into the depths of Lake Superior. What a fucking haunted weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why? As he drew... (laughs) As he drew closer, he saw it. There was no mistaking it. It was indeed a ship, and old too by the looks of it. But was it the famed, doomed Kamloops lost to the passage of time? He continued along the frame of the ship in search of clues. A few minutes later, he saw what appeared to be faded lettering. Brushing aside decades of algae, he saw the faded words which read in large block letters, the SS Kamloops. Natalia, I am going to show you a drawing of how the Kamloops was found off the coast of Isle Royale. And even this drawing just gives me the heebie-jeebies. We'll see how you feel about it. Maybe I'm just being a giant pussy. Probably. But (laughs) uh, scared the absolute fucking shit out of me just to see this drawing. Okay, I just texted it to you. Ah! Okay, this is a drawing of the water. It's like the waterline. You see like a little boat. And then that boat has a bunch of lines, like, drawn down towards a bigger shipwreck on the bottom of the lake. And it's, like, laying on its side. Yeah, it's laying on its side, and it's got, like, a busted nose or whatever. So this is how the wreck was described by the divers that found it. Quote, The wreck lies on a steep slope. The stern is toward shore, about 195 feet below the surface at its shallowest point. One of the first things the divers check is the condition of the rudder and propeller. They both seem to be intact. The divers go to the back deck and examine a large wooden wheel. It's apparently an auxiliary steering wheel for emergencies because the main steering equipment would be in the pilot house near the bow of the ship. They note that the glass in a skylight over the engine room is intact. Snap some more pictures and move forward along the 250-foot ship. They see other artifacts, the inside of a cabin, a string of new shoes to be sold in some Canadian store, a drum with steel cable neatly rolled on it, a running light that looks to be in good condition. They can't make it to the pilot house at the front, it's too deep. But they get about two-thirds of the way forward and they can see the pilot house with its top shorn off. Its roof was found in the 1920s, along with other debris washed ashore at Isle Royale. 
the best theory about the sinking, according to one of the divers, named Holden, is that the ship lost its steering and drifted at the mercy of the storm. Quote, it's quite possible that the final disaster occurred because of a massive ice buildup on its deck mm. caused by waves crashing on the freighter and freezing in the bitter cold, he added. He emphasized that the theory isn't proven. Fellow diver Merriman said, what they've been able to inspect of the ship bears that theory out. Quote, all the other wrecks around Isle Royale have their bows smashed up and pointed to the shore, Merriman says. The Kamloops has her stern to the shore and it's intact. The bow, 270 or more feet below the surface, retains its secrets. Later dives by those and other divers add to what is known of the last moments of the Kamloops. A party led by a man named John Steele filmed the wreck in 1978. This expedition discovered that the engine telegraph was set at the, quote, finished with engines position indicating that the engines may not have been operational at the time of the sinking or that the vessel was laid to before the disaster. Steele's party made the following speculations based on their observations. In the position of her last sighting and in the raging storm, a guy wire attached to the port side of the Kamloop stack snapped or tore free. The stack, no longer secure and positioned only by gravity, toppled to the starboard side, shearing off the ventilators and crashing overboard, breaking through the starboard railing atop the stern cabin. The coal-fired, force-draft engine could not function without the stack. The crew was forced to finish the engines. If there had been power available, they would have been able to put it on standby instead of finished with engines. Kamloops power plant was shut down before the sink. With no power, she was at the mercy of the raging storm, and the northeast gales tossed and blew her toward Isle Royale. She hit Isle Royale broadside, smashing her starboard bow. Temporarily, she remained fixed on the reef, quickly taking on water. She rapidly sank bow first to rest at the foot of the reef. The crew probably thought themselves safer aboard rather than facing the icy seas and sub-zero temperatures. They probably hoped that she would remain foundered on the reef, leaving a potential for rescue. However, the opened cabin door may indicate a hasty departure of crew members as they realized their doom. The other 12 crew members probably remained trapped in the stern house, yet to be opened. Because of the hazards involved with conducting air dives to the depths of the Kamloops, particularly in frigid water, a decision was made by the Submerged Cultural Resources Unit not to document the site using dives. In 1985, the opportunity to visit the site was offered by Michigan State University using the Sea Link submarines from the research vessel Seward Johnson. Okay, Michigan State University has a history of doing weird haunted stuff. We talked about it in the episode where that one weird dude who, like, did, like, what was his name? It was a two-part episode... He had like a house. Oh, a, oh, yes. A hotel that was yes. weird. H.H. Uh, Holmes. Yes, H.H. Holmes went to Michigan. Never forget. Never Michigan forget. Michigan State University uh, allowed a serial killer to go in there and perform autopsies Whoa. on their bodies and steal the bodies for just like his own experiments. That almost makes me want to go to Michigan University. <laughs> 
Because I'm like, what are they think? What secrets do they have that the right. rest of us don't have? And then also remember his, the girlfriend, the ex-fiance or whatever that like supposedly he was like abusing and was a dick to went to like the board of the, the Michigan State and was like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but um, one of your students who's becoming a doctor is like a scammer and told me that I was his fiance, but actually he has another fiance and I think he's fucking weirdo. And, and he's, like, stealing bodies and stuff like that. Yes. And they were just like, mm. we don't care. Yeah, we don't care. You know what? If you go to Mi- – there has to be listeners that go to Michigan University. In fact, I went to high school with a girl that went to Michigan University. It's a great university. But what is up with the haunted shit, you guys? Let us know. Write us an email. Let's get hauntedpod at gmail.com. They only care about the pursuit of knowledge, clearly. We stand. Over the years, it is estimated that approximately 50 dives have been made to the Kamloops in the effort to solve why exactly it sank. During those dives, the discovery of a body was found in the engine room. The body is unidentified, but has been nicknamed Old Whitey. Natalia, I am going to show you one of the only photos published of this body because this is very controversial. Okay, I don't really understand what I'm looking at. I see there's like a shipwreck and there is something white kind of floating there. But it's like, remember when I was telling you about my dead fish? Yes. It kind of is like that. Like, I don't really know that the tail of the dead fish was gone and that was like its defining features, right? So it really just looked like if you took the wings off of a plane and like opened up the fuselage and like just had pieces of, that's what it kind of looks like. It looks like a white reflective thing but it doesn't look like a person to me. What is this? Like, what, what are, are these the legs? I'm so glad you asked because we're about to talk about what happened to that body and why it looks like that. So in an article by Greg Newkirk for weekandweird.com entitled Meet Old Whitey, the preserved corpse of the SS Kamloops, Lake Superior's most haunted shipwreck, Newkirk writes the following, quote, While no one is quite sure what caused the Kamloops to sink, the few clues that were discovered paint a pretty horrific picture. It wasn't until the spring that the first signs of the Kamloops demise were discovered by fishermen of Isle Royale. Scattered across the island were the remains of nine crew members who had managed to escape on a lifeboat. Some were found huddled near a makeshift fire pit, others washed up on the shore. The ones who weren't frozen to death appeared to have been partially eaten by the island's wolf population. The Kamloops, on the other hand, was nowhere to be found. It went down in history as one of the ghost ships of the Great Lakes, dozens of ships to mysteriously vanish without a trace. It retained this status for 50 years until it was discovered at the bottom of Lake Superior, in nearly perfect condition just off 12 o'clock point on the north coast of Isle Royale. It appeared to have lost power and slid down an underwater incline, coming to rest on its side. Divers who explored the ship couldn't believe how well-preserved it was. The holds of the Kamloops were filled with farm machinery, once destined for the Canadian Plains, but even the food was in incredible condition. Since Lake Superior only ever reaches a few degrees above freezing at its depths, the icy water acted as a kind of natural refrigerator. Coupled with a relative lack of life at the bottom of the lake, even things like clothing and leather shoes, still stored neatly in crew cabins, were perfectly preserved, lending a dreamlike eeriness to the exploration of the sunken ship. Considering the depth and temperature of the waters, the dive was reserved for only the most experienced, which meant that relatively few explorers got to wander through the sunken bowels of the Kamloops. 
The ones who did, though, began to resurface with frightening tales. It would seem that at least one of the ship's crew decided to stick around, and so many divers had, quote-unquote, met him, that they even gave him a nickname, Grandpa. As exploration of the Kamloops grew, whispers of Grandpa began to make the rounds in diving circles. Some divers reported seeing the pale white ghost kicked back in one of the crew bunks, quietly and calmly watching the explorers make their way through the sunken ship. Others claimed he would wander the boat, oblivious to the fact that it was sitting at the bottom of Lake Superior, going about his business as if he were still alive. Then there were others who reported something even more frightening, that Grandpa would follow them as they made their way through the ship, and that he wasn't just a ghost, he was physical. Ah! Grandpa, they claimed, would actually reach out and touch them. It turns out that the frigid waters of Lake Superior had not just refrigerated farm equipment and foodstuffs, it had perfectly preserved one of the 13 crewmen who never made it ashore. His body stiff and his skin white as snow, the nameless member of the Kamloops crew had floated inside the ship for 50 years, alone until the divers began to occasionally filter in. Some had taken to calling him Old Whitey, but those who had heard the stories of ghostly encounters knew the truth. This was Grandpa's body. Explorers began to take notice of how Grandpa's corpse would follow them from the time they entered the ship until they left. Some of them rationalized it as currents, but others insisted that there was something unnatural, even intelligent, about the way Grandpa moved. Some even returned saying that they had seen Grandpa's ghost and his body in the same trip, though never in the same room. Despite how frightening a visit from Grandpa was, there was never any reason for alarm, he never attempted to hurt or drown anyone, and never appeared angry or upset. Mostly, he just seemed happy to have some company. After all, it had been a while. Even the corpse, though, initially disturbing, floated peacefully along next to the divers, revealing small details like a wedding ring still attached to old Whitey's stiff fingers. Hmm. Today, Grandpa's well-preserved corpse is still floating in the wreck of the Kamloops, where he spends most of his time occupying the engine room. Dive logs are filled with notes about shaking hands with Grandpa or paying respects to old Whitey, and partially because of him, the National Park Service has protected the shipwreck as a culture treasure, though they allow only the most experienced and respectful divers to enter the location. There persists rumors and sightings even still today of ghost ships sailing along Lake Superior, appearing during daylight, and some believe these sightings to be of the SS Kamloops. Natalia, I am going to show you a video of one of these ghost ship sightings that happened during broad daylight. What? Okay, I can't wait to see this. Why is it a grandpa? Just because it's old? So basically, these divers that go down into this shipwreck just to do like urban exploration or whatever, or sometimes for like research purposes, you have because you have to get permission from Canada to go down to the shipwreck. People will go down there and this corpse and we're going to talk about why in a second. But this corpse has decayed in such a way that it floats. It doesn't sink. It doesn't rise. It just floats. And it follows people through this ship. 
Most of the time it can be found in the engine room, which is that picture I showed you is the engine room. But a lot of the time people will enter the ship and they'll just see him floating in front of them already before they even enter. And I'm gonna show you an illustration that one diver did of this. How creepy. Like you're already in a shipwreck, you're already diving deep, like it's already scary. Everyone's like told you that this is like really dangerous and you have to be really accomplished and really expert to be able to go down there. So you're probably already second guessing yourself and like, why did I lie on my application yeah. so I could go do this? And now you're confronted with the reality, which is you could drown. Oh wow. Yeah, that's like super horrifying. There's a there's a a diver and just like to in his peripheral vision, there's like literally just a body with its arms outstretched like just staring at him like a sloth as soon as they enter this corpse is already staring at them which by the way there are no pictures of old whitey's face and the reason for this is twofold divers feel like it would be bad luck to share the face of old whitey but they also think that it would be disrespectful because this guy is like down there through no fault of his own and they don't think that he would want to be necessarily seen in that way. There's like only two pictures that exist and they're all of his legs. Okay, now let me show you. Oh, and then grandpa, I just want to explain. So grandpa is a separate entity. It's like, it is the ghost of old Whitey, but it appears outside of old Whitey's body. So basically the divers that go down there, they'll see old Whitey's corpse floating and following them around, but it's not sentient. It's like, it, it's alive in a sense, but it has no thoughts or feelings of its own. It just follows people around really creepy. And then the ghost, like the soul of old Whitey is outside of the body and it walks around the ship going about its everyday chores as if it were still a sailor sailing on the Lake Superior. That is so creepy. I also just wonder, yeah, I don't know. That's, I don't like that a lot. It reminds me of the Black Diver episode where I'm wondering yes. if, like, could these people just be, like, under some sort of low oxygen? Who's to say, right? Yeah, it could just be hallucinations. So I just sent you a YouTube video. It is of a video that a random guy took on Lake Superior, but it was reposted by Fox News. An unusual sighting on Lake Superior has people wondering, is it a lighthouse, perhaps an oil rig, or some sort of paranormal phenomena? While recording a music video shooting iconic Michigan landmarks, Jason Asselin and friends were watching a rainbow in the distance when they spotted something strange on the horizon, something the group had never seen before. Several miles off the coast of Marquette, Michigan, a tall, eerie, unidentifiable object appeared in the water. Asselin says the object was bobbing in the choppy lake water, rising hundreds of feet in the air, resembling a gigantic ship. But after about 20 minutes, Asselin says the object disappeared. He claims it could have been a ghost ship. According to the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, the Great Lakes is the final resting place for more than 6,000 shipwrecks. The museum says about 30,000 lives have been lost in Great Lakes shipwrecks. That is really weird. Yeah, that's weird. You guys, look at this video at Let's Get Haunted. It literally looks like the mass of a ship. Like, it's like a shadow in the distance, but it's kind of like that weird hologram thing where, like, if you're driving in the desert, you see, like, a reflection, like, a mirage type thing. It's weird. It looks like a ghost. Like, it doesn't look 100% solid, but it's definitely, like, a shadow of a boat that's not supposed to be there. 
Yeah, it's weird. It's exactly like you said. Like, I don't want people to imagine a literal solid ship because that's not what it is. But it's creepy as shit and there's no explanation. And it was even picked up by major news networks because everyone was like, what the fuck is this? So this next video that I just sent you, Natalia, is a video of a scuba diver exploring the shipwreck. And you can see old Whitey at around two minutes. And at around seven minutes, you can see another body floating. So old Whitey is the most popular or most well-known body that's in the ship, but there are other bodies that are still there. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is super sketch and scary. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's just going to the engine room and you're right. There is literally just a floating body like wedged between some of the stuff in there. And he shouldn't be able to follow people around, right? But all these scuba divers say that he follows them. And then if you go to seven minutes, you're going to see another body. It's those super bright white things are bodies. Oh, yeah. So do you see how they're kind of just creepily floating there? Like they're not, they don't rise to the surface and they also don't fall to the ground. Yeah, it's I can't it's it's almost hard for me to even like tell what it is because I'm so not used to seeing like people's bodies in that state in that state or like position or anything. It doesn't look human. It just looks like random shit. I'm glad you brought that up because you might be asking yourself, why are the bodies so white? And I just want to point out, you're not looking at skeletons. You're looking at skin having gone through a process called adipocere. Basically, a body... That's not like their white sailor clothes? Nope. And I'm going to explain what happens during this process of adipocere. Basically, a body in freezing waters will not decay like it would if it was on land in the elements. Instead, the body's fat turns into a substance called adipocere, also nicknamed corpse wax, grave wax, and mortuary wax. According to Wikipedia, the chemical process of adipocere formation is also known as saponification and came to be understood in the 17th century when microscopes became widely available. In 1825, physician and lecturer Augustus Granville is believed to have somewhat unwittingly made candles from the adipocere of a mummy and used them to light a public lecture he gave to report on the mummy's dissection. Wait, he, how can you accidentally do that? Granville apparently thought that the waxy material from which he made the candles had been used to preserve the mummy, rather than it being a product of the saponification of the mummified body. Oh my god, he should not tell people that. I know! Like, when he figures that out, he shouldn't... He shouldn't publicize that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other bodies like this that have been found throughout history. There's one that's on display in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the Muter Museum. It's called the Soap Lady. And her entire corpse turned itself into adipocere. So if you want to Google soap lady. Oh, yeah. Miles ahead of you. And you want to describe if you want to describe it to people. What? Oh, my God. That is horrifying. Yes. You guys, this is so terrifying. It's a mummy with its mouth, like, open, screaming. It literally, like, you know the movie The Mummy? Yes. It looks like that. And you see the white fucking waxy. I think because it's above ground, it's going to look more yellow. What the fuck is this? Ah! But her entire body went through saponification. Yeah, look. It looks like a mummy dipped in... And wax. wax. Candle wax. Yeah, that's scary. So that mummy, because it's above ground, it looks kind of yellowy white. But in freezing temperatures, 
the color of the adipocere is super, super bright, brilliant white, which is why those corpses don't even look like corpses. They just look like scary, unknown objects. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these other, like, soap bodies or whatever, and they just look like... If I didn't know those were corpses, I feel like if I was a diver down there, uh, I would just think it was trash or something. Yeah. Or maybe, like, I don't know, a fucking giant candle or, like, a weird, I don't know, like, like a some weird of the algae. Stuff they were um, transporting. Yeah, yeah, like a good, right? So, because bodies left in wrecks at the bottom of Lake Superior go through this process of adipocere, Lake Superior is also said to be the lake that, quote, never gives up its dead. And musician Gordon Lightfoot even sang a folk song released in 1976 about a different shipwreck, the Edmund Fitzgerald, that was also sank in Lake Superior, where he sings, quote, The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitche The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. And ironically, if you go back to that video, that vlog of that guy scuba diving through the wreck, and you skip to six minutes and 55 seconds, you can see a perfectly preserved cargo of Lifesavers candy. Ironic, right? Lifesavers candy. Yeah, I saw that, and I thought that too. I was like, this is irony. Sad. It's very, very sad, and it just adds like another layer of. I'm just, sure that's like, what, what they were the eating when they were waiting for the wolves to eat them. Exactly, it's just it's so tragic on so many different levels. And in the comment of that vlog, that scuba diving vlog that I sent you, a user going by the name it's the seven seven three Wero wrote, "quote I've had the honor of diving the Kamloops. What an adventure! And thanks for the upload. This footage is incredible." Lots of lore surrounding this wreck. She's located on her starboard side and is 200 feet down. It was a long dive for me and so cold and scary. I saw two bodies during my dive to her stern and there are more bodies trapped in the bow end. One is in the engine room and one is of the two women stewardesses lost at sea, in my opinion. There is a memorial headstone I've seen pictures of commemorated to the crew on the island. Whitey's body is in this video. That's the white mass you see at two minutes in the engine room tangled in the catwalk. Gives me chills seeing this footage. My instructor said the body is like soap, and if you look close, his wedding ring is still on his hand, but I kept my distance. His desk chair is floating behind him, up on the upper level of the engine room. A lot of treasure divers have been down there messing with him, and some of the wreckage has literally been chained down by the NPS to keep people from stealing souvenirs. When you first descend the line attached to her stern, you are right near the engine room, and it's the easiest place to enter the wreckage, so you see him right away and get the tragic impact of the event. It is a grave site, after all. A time capsule to be explored, cool footage of the lifesavers, tons of them down there. The candies dissolved, but the rolls are still intact as they were in 1927. Shoes, wheelbarrows, chicken fins, and disc brakes are also all down there in the cargo holds. I remember seeing them all. 
So enlightening seeing this footage brought a lot of memories back. Thanks again. In 2011, like this guy says, a marker was finally placed on the previously unmarked grave of the unidentified bodies of the sailors of the SS Kamloops in Riverside Cemetery in Canada. And diving into these wrecked ships is actually very controversial, with some saying that diving into a sunken ship is the same thing as digging up someone's grave. What do you what do you think of this, Natalia? Because I'm conflicted. Well, I would say that digging up someone's grave is like a cheap shot, where diving into the shipwreck is kind of like you're putting yourself in a position to also become part of the shipwreck and die. That's true. So there's like a little honor behind it in a way. Like you've got to have some serious fucking balls to do that, you know? Right. Where I feel like just digging up someone's grave is like... I don't know, because you're not putting yourself in the danger, for me, it, it seems kind of like less, but I don't give a fuck. I'll dig up someone's grave yeah. to look at them, you know? <laughs> well, this is what I wrote down because I feel conflicted too. I said, on one hand, I definitely think that stealing souvenirs off the ship itself is gross and disrespectful. I also think messing with dead bodies is gross and disrespectful. Um, and I think stealing these souvenirs is gross, partially because there are bodies in the ship, but also because I kind of view it as like an underwater museum that preserves a moment right. in history. Yeah. And I wouldn't steal from a museum. Right. Also, I think stealing from an area with dead bodies is just a guaranteed way to be cursed. But I don't necessarily think that diving into a shipwreck is any more disrespectful than walking through a cemetery or walking through the Paris catacombs where you're surrounded by people's remains. But I did think it was an interesting talking point since it is so controversial. Um... And so I just brought it up because there are other shipwrecks at the bottom of Lake Superior, as we all know. And some of these shipwrecks still have like family members that are like alive today. Mm. And when bodies aren't recovered, there have been examples of like some like there's a there's a shipwreck called the, the Fitzgerald. And it's at the bottom of Lake Superior, and it's the one that, like, the guy wrote that song about, and I read the lyrics. Right. And down there, there are also some corpses that are in a similar state, and some of the family members petitioned the Canadian government to declare it, like, a grave site, like, so that people can't enter um, unless they're, like, part of, like, an approved organization. And if you dive illegally into the fits, you get fined $800,000. 800,000? Yes. But that's on the Canadian side. I don't think the American side has declared any wow. of that. The Canadians must be so rich. It, it's just crazy to think about, right? So I, it definitely is like an interesting talking point, and I'd love to hear what our listeners think about it. Um, for me personally, I just don't see what's so different about diving through a shipwreck versus walking through the Paris catacombs, you know? I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of desensitized to this shit at this point. Like, I think if something is, like, old enough, like, we kind of, like, loses its significance, you know? Right. I, and it shouldn't be that way, but I'm kind of, like, f- curious. Like, let's fucking it's dig that shit up. want to look at it. I don't want to steal stuff from a wreck. No. I wouldn't touch stuff. I just want to see it, but I don't have the skill or the brevity to go down and look at it so if someone else wants to take some stuff take some pictures and videos and show it to me like i won't report them i have (laughs) neither the gumption nor the wherewithal to dive down and look at a soap mummy in the eyes as it follows me through a shipwreck but i am grateful to the guy that uploaded this vlog because i want to look at it Mm -hmm. 
I want to see it. It's to me, it's history. It's a museum. Yeah, it's history. I that's like the fascination for me with like all of the disaster stuff. Is it's like a lot of just history, right? Um, like the Titanic, you know, that's so interesting to me to look and see how they lived, like how the, even the ship ran, like yeah, how did they make this like floating village, you know? And like with this too, it's like. This is a moment in time. These people literally sailing across a fucking freshwater lake trying to deliver 1920s things like wires and corn. Yeah, stuff that's not even that important. <laughs> yeah, right? and it's just interesting to me to see. It's very interesting. And I do want to emphasize that no family members of the SS Kamloops have ever come forward condemning people diving into the wreck, at least not publicly. So in that sense, the Kamloops is different from the Fitzgerald because the Fitzgerald has family members that are like, don't go down there. Like, we don't want anyone down there. It's disrespectful. Okay, Natalia, so as I was researching and like looking at all these different YouTube videos that I just showed you that show different parts of the wreck, I came across a YouTube dive vlog and I reached out to the guy that filmed it and he agreed to come on the show for an interview and I'm super fucking excited. So now we're gonna listen to the Zoom interview that I did with somebody who has gone down personally and scuba dived the Kamloops. Hello. Hi, Curtis, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to go ahead and um, introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about how you got into scuba diving? <clears throat> so my name is Curtis Lahr. I got into scuba diving because this goes way back to 2003. I was on a trip in Aruba. And at the end of that vacation, we did a, like an island tour with a Jeep, whatever. And at the end of the tour, we got to the spot where we could go snorkeling. And there was an option to do this thing called sea trek. And if you don't know what that is, it's this kind of goofy thing where they put this really heavy helmet on you and it's um, got a hose that goes up to the surface that feeds you air. So you go down on the bottom of the, the ocean basically and they have this little route mapped out for you and you can, you walk around this route with this goofy helmet on, right? Yeah. And the whole time I'm down there, there's support divers that are with you just to make sure you don't hurt yourself, right? And I was watching those scuba divers the whole time thinking, wow, that looks way better than this silly thing. So that was in December of, I think it was 2002. And then that following spring, um, I stopped by the local dive shop here and got signed up for classes. And I've been doing it ever since. And it turns out there's really good scuba diving really close to where I'm, where I am. I'm about maybe an hour outside of Minneapolis and let's say it's like a 90 minute drive to, um, the iron range where they used to mine iron in these big open pits <clears throat> and they when they quit mining them they all flooded and so that's what I scuba dive in now oh, like wow. just about just about every week yeah there's a pretty big community of divers around here that do that and then you know I met a bunch of other people that are interested in diving and I got into tech diving and that's how I wound up diving you know the shipwrecks in Lake Superior. Can you describe the difference to our audience of what tech diving is and how that differs from other types of diving? Yeah. So I think the 
the way scuba diving certification agencies describe it, tech diving is any type of diving that goes beyond um, depth and time limits of recreational diving. Anytime you go past, I think the depth limit for recreational diving is 130 feet. So anything past that would be considered a tech dive. I'm not going to get into the time durations or the time limits, but if you if you're at 100 feet for like more than 15, 20 minutes, you're going to have to do mandatory decompression stops on the way back up. And that gets you into tech diving. And then another thing that would differentiate it is usually in tech diving, you have quite a bit different equipment and you're carrying different um, breathing gases. Short story is you get to go deeper and you get to stay longer. So how long did it take you to get your tech diving license? I assume you started off with like a recreational license and then sort of worked your way up. That's correct. Yeah. Um, I really wasn't interested in tech diving up until 2018 or a little bit before that. I've been doing trips up to Isle Royal, which is where the Kamloops is. And most of the wrecks around that island are out their recreational depth. So you can dive most of them. There's a couple that are that are technical dives, but um, most of them are, are recreational. And um, a lot of the people that I dive with, a lot of my buddies that I dive with, they got into tech diving. And I kind of, I wouldn't say that I followed them, but because they got into it, then I started to get more interested in it. So I actually took my first tech class in 2018 and then finished um, the following spring. Do you dive mostly in lakes or do you also dive in the ocean? Um, so the local diving that I do here around home is all in these open pit mines so they're it's basically a lake for you know lack of a better term and then I also dive in the Great Lakes at least once once a summer I go out there and either dive like Lake Superior Michigan or Huron and then usually twice twice a winter I go down and dive in the Caribbean or some warm destination. I'm sure that there are differences between the Caribbean and Lake Superior and mine diving. The two biggest things that come to mind right off the bat would be the water temperature. So everything that I dive locally here, the pits and the Great Lakes, it's cold water. It's 38 degrees. It's cold. You, you can't just go in with a three mil shorty and expect to be comfortable. And the visibility, the water clarity is not is not really as good either as like down in the Caribbean. So those two things are definitely different. The Caribbean is warm water and it's, you can see <laughs> it's really clear water. For the Great Lakes, is there a certain time of year? Like, is there a window that you, that you hit in order to dive in like Lake Superior, for example? Yeah. So there are charters that run from like maybe May, late May or, or maybe, maybe once the ice is out. So I'm going to say May, and they'll usually go through Labor Day or a little bit into September. For myself, I like to go in August because that's the best chance to get at least warm surface water. And when I say warm surface water, I mean it can be maybe 60 degrees down to 60 feet. So in a dry suit, that's fairly comfortable. Have you ever experienced, we did an episode recently. In that episode, we talked about something called nitrogen narcosis. And I was wondering, have you ever experienced that or know anybody who has? And if you can sort of describe what that is or what it feels like or what you've heard about it. Yeah, so absolutely. I've experienced it. Anybody that's taken their open water certification probably knows what it is. It's, it's often called the martini effect. So basically what it is, is when you breathe compressed air, you go descend into the water. Every 33 feet that you descend is another atmosphere, the pressure that you're, you're being exposed to. 
So as that pressure builds, the air that you're breathing is 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen. And that nitrogen, you're taking in more than your body can process. And that creates this narcotic effect that's called nitrogen narcosis. And it kind of feels like, well, it's kind of hard to explain. I wouldn't say that it feels like you're drunk, but it, it, def it definitely has like like you feel like you're buzzed. The first time I really experienced it really like severe, I got tunnel vision. So I was down on this dive that was, that was probably about 130 feet down in one of the pits and it's pretty dark. You know, there's not a lot of ambient light and that makes it worse for me anyways. So my vision just started to like, I'm in like this and I, my buddy was right to my left and all of a sudden I couldn't see him anymore. And I just grabbed his, got his attention and said, Hey, we need to go up a little bit. Cause I'm he knew what was happening, but it's not always like that. It's not always that severe. Um, sometimes it's just, like I mentioned before, that the water is really cold here. Sometimes it's just enough that all of a sudden I don't feel cold anymore. So it just like makes the cold go away. Sometimes it makes it so that I'm really detail focused. Like I'll look at my air pressure. I'll look at my, my dive computer to make sure that I'm not overstaying my allotted time. Like I get really detailed focused. Some people say that they've hallucinated, but it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a joke for me and my dive buddies. Like, oh, if something went wrong or something happened on a dive and you can just say that you were narked. I mean, it's <laughs> um, like, and before when I was talking about what the difference is between recreational and technical diving. And I said that in technical diving, you breathe different gases. And that's one of the reasons why you breathe different gases is to get rid of some of that nitrogen. So you don't experience that um, narcosis, that depth. So on um, tech diving, it, you would have a higher chance of experiencing something like nitrogen narcosis if you weren't prepared? Yeah, definitely. If you're not breathing the right gas, like if you're just breathing straight air and you go down past, you know, they say it can happen at 60 feet, but I don't think that's really very common. Like for me, if I'm breathing straight air, I don't feel it until I get down to about 140 feet. And the, the worse the conditions are, the worse the narcosis will be. So if the visibility is low, there's not very good light, it's really cold, then I'll experience it more. I was on a dive with a guy that I'm pretty sure it was nitrogen narcosis and he just froze. Like he just wasn't responsive. Yeah, we had to get him, we had to get him to shallow water because we didn't know what was going on with him. Like he didn't respond to us. He didn't respond to any of the you know standard signals that we learn. And and that's probably the, the only time I've ever like seen somebody be really affected by it. Did he say why he froze or was there just no rhyme or reason to it? You know, he didn't have an explanation. It was really weird. So when when did you dive the cam loops for the first time? 2018, I think would have been the first time. How many times and have you gone down there? It's going to be between like eight and 10 times I dove it. Wow. So is it one of your favorite dives or is it just nearby? So that's why you've done it um, so many times. So kind of both. Um, so like I said, I the first time I went to Isle Royale was in 2011. And then I think we started going every year starting in 2015 or 16. And it was always a wreck that you know, the boat charter, Captain Ryan would tell us, hey, the Kamloops is right here. We're going past it. And none of us could dive it because it's, you know, it's too deep. Well, in, in 2018, I had the opportunity to dive it, even though I wasn't tech certified. Um, and basically, I just did a bounce dive on it. So I went down, touched the rail and went back up. And I guess I, I did go over and look at the wheel. And just because the wheel is 
I mean, it's shallower than the rest. It's probably like 200 feet, but since it's so close and just the history of the wreck and everything and the, and the shape that it's in, the condition that it's in, it, it has kind of become one of my favorites. It's really neat because of how well preserved, at least from the photos I've seen, is that the impression you got seeing it in person that it's pretty well preserved? Yeah, it's very well preserved. And I think every scuba diver that dives wrecks will tell you this, that if you can dive on a wreck that's not busted up and it's all intact and it looks like a ship that could possibly still float, that is, that's huge. Like it's way better to dive a wreck like that than just a pile of lumber down in the bottom or a bunch of twisted metal. But yeah, there's another wreck on the North shore that we dive a little bit by the Split Rock Lighthouse. It's called the Madeira. It's really close to shore. It's just a shore dive and that thing is all busted up and twisted and it doesn't look like a wreck. It just looks like a pile of old junk. So that compared to the Kamloops, you know, the Kamloops just blows it away. When was the last time that you dove the Kamloops? Um, it would have been September of 2020. So when you dove Kamloops, um, I was reading online that some of these wrecks, because uh, the Canadian government has declared some of them to be historical sites or grave sites, that you need a special license to go down there. Is that the case with the Kamloops? You need to have a permit, but usually the dive charter takes care of that. With a dive charter, do you have, do you have like a leader that'll go down with you and kind of make sure everyone's okay and show you how to get down there? Or is it just a guy that drives you on a boat right above it and then says, jump off? Um, so there's two types of dive charters. The one that operates up in Isle Royal would be like um, the, the ladder. He doesn't, he doesn't get in the water with you. Um, he, he kind of expects that you're experienced enough. You're, you're kind of on your own, you and your buddy. When you last went to the Kamloops, one guy was saying that there's like a, like a wire that goes up from the Kamloops to the surface so that you can follow it down. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. There's actually two. There's one on the, the bow and then there's one on the stern. It's, it's probably nylon rope is what it is. And um, they're tied off to the wreck and they go up to the surface and there's a buoy. That way the dive charters know where it is and they can hook onto those mooring lines. And then when you dive it, you follow that line down. So you're not just dropping and and blind, like where's the wreck? So you follow that rope down. And then I was also reading that following the line down takes you directly into the engine room. Is that true? Um, it, it's not, it's very close to the engine room. So that would be the, the one on the um, stern. Um, yeah, if you follow that line down, it's going to bring you to the rail. And right, if you go over the rail, the engine room is right there. Yep. How, how long does it take, like going from surface down to back up with decompression? How long did that, does that take? So it kind of depends on how long you decide to stay down on the wreck for how long the total process is. But to get down there, well, I'm going to say it's probably like three or four minutes. I could look at my dive computer if you wanted me to, yeah, to give you an accurate cool. number. Yeah, so it took me, let's see, the last time I dove it, it took me seven minutes to get down to, this was on the bow, so that's deeper. So that's 240 feet, oh, five minutes. And then from the, from the bow, this was pretty cool because we went out on the bow and then the boat captain was going to move the boat to that other mooring line on the on the stern so we didn't have to swim like halfway down to the stern and then come back and then go back up the bow line we just swam the whole length of the wreck and then went up on the stern so that was a total of 22 minutes and then we started to go up 
So I was in the water for a, an hour and 15 minutes. So from 22 minutes, so this was almost 50 minutes of decompression we had to do. So that was kind of a long one. You mentioned that visibility in Lake Superior is like not the greatest. So when, right, so when you were going down to the Kamloops, did you need to have a like headlamp or how do you navigate that? Yeah, so the visibility in, in Lake Superior can be really good. Um, I was just comparing it to the Caribbean. Oh, gotcha. Um, so it's it's definitely better than the local pit mines that I dive in. Yeah, it can be really good. And even down on the Kamloops at 200 feet, there's ambient light. Like you don't need a light to see, um, but everybody carries a light just because it, you know, it is pretty dark. And it's, I have a, just like a smaller flashlight that is attached to my hand. And then my camera rig has two really big video lights on it that are usually on the whole time. So it lights up a pretty big portion of the wreck. When you go down to the wreck, are you mostly swimming like around it or above it? Or do you actually, cause I, I watched your video. That's how I found you um, through okay. your YouTube blog, but I can't tell from my perspective, if you're actually like going through an, uh, like an intact ship where there's like a, a ceiling above you and walls to the side, or whether you're like kind of going in filming, coming back out. Yeah, it'd be like the latter. So have, have you seen the drawings of the, the cam loops? Yes, yes, I Yeah, have. so it's it's laying on, the, on its side, right? Mm -hmm. And so that top deck has these hatches in it. And those hatches lead into like cargo holds. So most of those shots that you see in my video, I'm going into one of those holds and taking a picture of whatever the cargo was, whether it was the shoes or the lifesavers or, or whatever it was, the matchsticks. And then I'm coming back out. Same with the engine room. There's, you, there's hatches on the engine room. You can swim into that big engine room and then come right back out those hatches. Yeah, so you're going in and out of those hatches. And then when you come out, you swim down like the top of what would be the top of the deck or whatever for the next one. Can you talk me through like the very first time you ever dove down there? Can you kind of walk me through like a, a narrative of what it was like to see that for the first time and like what area you started in and what you saw and what cargo items you saw? Yeah, so I'll give you two because of the first time, like I said, doesn't really count because it was just a bounce dive. So the first time when I did that bounce dive, I went down and on the stern, there's the auxiliary or emergency helm, they call it. So it's the big ship wheel. If you saw my video, that's the last shot. It's just like an iconic ship wheel. And that's what I went down to see. Like, I want to see that wheel. And to me, to be able to see the wheel on a wreck like that intact, and if somebody didn't steal it, is like, that's awesome. So follow the, follow the mooring line down. You hit the rail. Um, Captain Ryan, the boat captain told me just go to your right you'll see the wheel so it was really easy to find you can your light will shine shine the wheel from that rail like where the mooring is so I just went looked at the wheel took a picture of it came back up it was a really short dive only a couple minutes of decompression that I had to do so that was the first time so fast forward to when I was certified to do this kind of dive and everything my favorite dive on it would have been when we went in on the bow and swam to the stern and came up the stern line. You're dropping down that mooring line and it takes forever, it seems like. You know, you're just sinking into the abyss and it's getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And if there's warm water at the surface, you break through that thermal line at like 60 feet 
and the cold is just pressing in on you. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy <laughs> to think about. And pretty soon the wreck will just come into view see the boughs laying and I think it's 270 to the dirt, but the wreck itself is obviously sitting on top of that. So you're at 240-ish feet and I think the pilot house is sitting there. So you see that shape kind of come into view and then you see the hull, the wreck going off to the right. And then there's a couple cool things right at the pilot house. Like there's an axe that's on the back of the pilot house that would have been used to like break in if there was a fire or something. I think it's just the fire axe. And then there's an auxiliary anchor that's hanging there. That's really cool. And then from there, you just start swimming down the deck and you peek into each one of these holds. And I don't remember the order, but there's lifesavers, like the lifesavers candy. Like there's big cases of them. Obviously the candies is dissolved and not in there anymore, but the packaging is still intact. So there's lifesavers in one hold. There's leather shoes in one hold that are spilling out. It's kind of crazy to see all that. And then there's tar paper. There's like snow fence, a bunch of farm implements. There's one hold that's just filled with wooden matchsticks. There's just a billion matchsticks in there. Like that's kind of crazy. And then there's one hold that has... There's whiskey barrels, and I don't think there's whiskey in them. I think it's probably corn or some other grain that they were hauling in them. That's kind of neat to see. And then you're getting kind of closer to the stern, and then the, the engine room is in there. You swim around in the engine room. And yes, Whitey is in the engine room, if you know who Whitey is. Uh, it's one of the crew guys that went down. And then from the engine room, then you're going to get to the get to the stern. And that's where that auxiliary wheel is, you know, the, the ship's wheel. It's really cool. And the binnacle is right there. And then you go around the back and then you can look at the propeller and the rudder. And that's the end of the dive. And you can go up from there on the, on the stern line. So I was actually going to ask if you saw the infamous body of old Whitey. So you did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you go in the engine room, you can't miss them. I mean, it's um it's really dark in there obviously and if you like with my video lights on everything is dark colored except whitey he's that's why his name is whitey is because there's this big white mass that's laying on the catwalk on the back side of the engine i have read some accounts that people have swam up so close to him that they can see he has a wedding ring on so but i was wondering if you had looked at him for long enough to make out anything in particular or was it just poke your head in, shine the light, see a big white mass, look around the other stuff and then get out. Yeah. What you just described is, is basically what I did. I went in there just to film the, the engine room and just look to say, yes, I went in there and I saw Whitey. Now, somebody that I know showed me video that they shot and they got right up next to him and got really good video. And you can see every, you can see everything. Um, there's a rumor that I heard before I ever dove the wreck that the only thing that's there is his torso and one of his like, like his femur, like everything else is gone. His skull is laying there. His, I mean, the whole thing is there. I think the, his lower legs might be missing, mm -hmm. but his skull is definitely laying there. Oh, that is so, and, that's so interesting because every, I was going to ask you about that because every account I've read and I read quite a few, all of them are different. Like some people say they see the hands. Some people say the hands aren't there. Some people say they saw his face. Some people say, no, it, that's lost, washed away. Yeah, the video that I saw that didn't really leave any anything to speculation. Um, it is his, like the pole thing is there basically, except maybe his lower legs. And is there a reason why th this is the other part of the lore 
that I was reading, it seems like nobody is posting publicly any of those videos and good videos and photos of Whitey. Do you know why that is? Is there, is it some sort of like code amongst scuba divers that you just don't do that? Or is yeah. it? What I think it's just, I think it's just out of respect for, you know, the family or the, you know, the any remaining family. I don't know if there's people around that say they're related to him or whatever but that's that's why that's what i've heard anyway is that people just don't post stuff because it's it's not respectful what makes it less respectful than going down there in the first place and filming it you mean versus posting it online yeah yeah that's a good question he's never been identified nobody knows who he is so even if there were living family members i don't know that they would even know it's him okay i didn't i didn't know that i thought they did know who it was Mm -hmm. um yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't really have an answer for you. Yeah, no, we didn't have an answer either. We were just kind of going back and forth because we had read some pretty strong opinions on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. We had read um, a diver was basically saying that it's even disrespectful to even ask about old Whitey, like to even ask if divers have seen him. And then there was the other end of the spectrum where people were saying, well, isn't it more disrespectful to not remember him because of the whole situation with the cam loops and how it went down and I mean they were kind of forced to be out there later and forced to go through I don't know if you how familiar you are with the story but we had read um some newspaper articles during the time that they were looking for the cam loops in the 20s uh late 20s and one of the things we saw was that they were kind of forced to leave I believe it's called Whitefish Bay um they were kind of forced to leave because the insurance rates were going to go up again for the second time that winter. And so their company was like, you need to get out of Whitefish Bay and make it over to um, Thunder Bay. I think it was called Williams something at the time. And that's why they went out in the first place. So it's kind of this story about how these sailors sort of had no choice and went down with the ship so my co-host and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer I was just curious what your opinion was we were just kind of going back and forth like is it is it more disrespectful to just pretend like he's not there and that this thing didn't happen and like forget about him and let's never talk about him and never show any part of him to anybody or is it more disrespectful to acknowledge that he's there and post a video of him. I don't know the answer, but I was curious if you had any opinion or any of your dive buddies have talked about it at all. Cause it just seemed like it was a really prevalent topic in some of the like subreddits and different like dive threads that we were reading through that people had really strong opinions on both sides. Yeah, I guess my opinion is it's not at all disrespectful to go down there, dive it and look at it and take pictures and, or video, I mean, um... I mean, it's a grave site. So I would say the same behavior that is acceptable if you go to a grave site at your local cemetery is probably acceptable on a shipwreck. I mean, I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, there's other shipwrecks that have people on them, you know, bodies on them. And, you know, there's, it, it does seem like the Kamloops and Whitey is way more contentious than the rest of those. I don't think it's disrespectful to go dive it and take pictures. And that's another thing that we had talked about. Um, To me, as an outsider, I'm not a diver. So just reading this story, to me, it sort of seems almost like a museum. It doesn't even, to me, I know it's been declared a gravesite, but to me, it seems like a historical 
moment in time that's frozen that's like a really unique opportunity we have to get yeah. into like a different world yeah and i would i would take pictures at a museum so you know there's mummies in museums um you know we walk in paris there's the catacombs there's all these bones so yeah to me i don't quite see the controversy but i'm of course open to the fact that i'm not a diver and i have no clue maybe maybe it's just like dive culture i don't know yeah i would tend to agree with you on that on your take like i i don't really see what the big deal is but there are some accounts that divers has have said that not only do they see old whitey but they also see his ghost that they call grandpa um i've heard people say that he moves around which i think is nonsense i mean every time i've dove the wreck he's always in the same spot so i you know I, he doesn't move around he's always in the same spot um now i haven't I haven't been like, there's other places on the wreck that I haven't been. I'm not positive on this, but I think there are other bodies. And it could be that, that people are going into these other areas and there's another body and oh, and they, think they, they say, oh, there's Whitey. He moved over to this spot. I'm like, no, it's just another body. Yeah. Um, I also read, I think it was in a some dive book that had a bunch of stories about like haunted ships or whatever. And I think there was this person was saying how they were on a dive on the cam loops and they were going down this hall and they felt this presence behind them and they turned around and they maybe saw like something that they didn't expect there, you know, Whitey's ghost or whatever. I don't know. Is it creepy to be down there? I know I'm sure it's probably super interesting, but is it also sort of creepy and surreal to be seeing like these white masses because you're right there there's more than one body but is is it creepy at all to just see like a tragedy like frozen in time in front of you you know when I'm actually doing the dive I don't think about that at all but before and after I definitely think about it um you know every time I'm going up to Isle Royale on a trip I think about that I'm like it's kind of weird you know it's kind of a weird thing to be diving on this and it's a little spooky thinking about how deep it is and how dark it is and how cold it is. But when I'm actually on the dive, all of that just goes away. And I just think, oh, this is so cool. I mean, it, it's such a neat experience. And then you have all this, the stuff that you have to do just to make sure the dive is successful. You know, So your mind is kind of going over that stuff. But yeah, I don't really think it's, it's spooky or eerie when I'm on the wreck itself. I also read that some divers in the past have taken souvenirs from the ship. Have you ever heard of anyone doing that? Um, I've heard of people taking stuff from wrecks, not necessarily the cam loops, but yeah, it's frowned upon these days. You know, back in the 70s when they were discovering all these wrecks, it was a free-for-all. People would take stuff up as souvenirs. And but yeah, that's kind of changed. I know now, like all of the dive charters that I use for the um, Great Lakes diving, if you bring something up from the wreck, your charter will immediately end you're not going to get your money back and you're probably not allowed on the boat ever again. So it's, you got to leave it down there for the next person to enjoy it. Had you seen photos of old Whitey before you had gone down there? Yeah. So that video that I was telling you, I saw that my buddies got, I saw that before I dove it. You're the first person I've ever heard say this. So his skull is down there. Yeah. I absolutely saw a video of it. I mean, I didn't, I, when I dove it myself, I didn't go look, but there's no reason why it would be moved and his body is so white because he's in a state of adipocere 
his skin has gone through saponification. Was the head also in saponification or was it just a skull? Just the skull. Just the skull. Okay. So there's yep. no, you didn't see any like hair attached to it or anything. Nope. Just the skull. The most like official account that I've read about the bodies on the Kamloops was done by the National Park Service in 1987. They had sent down this unmanned ROV to like look around and, and film what they saw. So they had said one human body was confirmed, confirmed present in the engine room by the ROV. Reliable accounts by sport divers indicate that there are more with the numbers varying from two bodies to five. The body observed and filmed by the robot vehicle seems to be in a soapified state. This could not be confirmed by touch, but the appearance is white and appears textured. Adipocere formation is common for submerged corpses. This is a process in which soft tissues are converted into a soft waxy type substance, frequently compared to soap. That this condition should still be noted after 50 years is remarkable, but apparently not unique in the Great Lakes, since at least one other case on an Isle Royale shipwreck is known. Um, although common sense would suggest this to be the case, and some divers have reported that at least one of the individuals was wearing bib overalls, we could not confirm this by the ROV. It is clear, however, that decomposition was variable, and neither the head nor the feet remain attached to the corpse. The tibia and fibula of the legs extend out from the generic white mass of the body. So I believe they're describing old whitey, but I guess it could be it could be something else. In the video you saw, were the hands still there or no? I don't remember that. And it's interesting that it says that the, the head was detached. I would say that it was detached, but it was laying right there. Well, since it was just an ROV, they may just have not caught the right angle. This was 1987. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that the record has changed. Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting that there are so many varying accounts because I definitely read more than one where divers said that they could see a wedding ring on old Whitey. And then this formal account says he doesn't even have hands. So I was just wondering, if, yeah, if you had seen anything. Any yeah, I can't, I can't comment on that. I'm going to have to look the next time I go. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This was like really cool for me because we've done a lot of underwater episodes and I, like I said, I have no experience with scuba diving. So I'm always like, well, I guess whatever is written is like accurate. So it's cool to talk to somebody who actually has experience and can confirm or deny. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious if I'm sure you've reached out to other people that have been on their, on their wreck. I'd be curious to hear what their accounts are like. Yeah. Well, if I get any other cool information, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Plug whatever you want to plug. Where can people find you? Um, probably the best place is just my YouTube channel. So if you just search Curtis Law on YouTube, you'll find me. It's pretty much just all scuba diving videos ranging from local stuff to the Caribbean trips I go on to all the wreck trips that I go on. About how many wrecks have you gone down to sea? That'd be a really good, that's a really good question. In the last dive trip that I was on, we were talking about that. Like there's usually six of us that go and we're kind of going around the table, you know, after a couple beers, like how many wrecks have you been on? And I need to go through my dive log and count them up. It's dozens by now, maybe, maybe five dozen, six dozen. Wow. Our listeners definitely need to go check out your YouTube channel because there are a lot of people that listen to our show that are very fascinated by shipwrecks. So yeah. So Curtis Lahr, it's C-U-R-T-I-S-L-A-H-R. Awesome. Thank you so much, Curtis, for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Now, okay, Natalia, this is the end of our episode because the mystery of what caused the SS Kamloops to sink has never been solved. So the theories, I mean, I read you some of them Mm -hmm. as like different divers have given their opinions, but there is one that I have not told you about yet, and it is a paranormal theory. What? Grandpa? This is the best, spookiest theory of them all, in my humble opinion. According to an article published to mysteriesofcanada.com entitled Nautical Mysteries of Canada's Great Lakes, quote, For centuries, North America's five great lakes have served as the setting for a host of legends, folktales, and nautical mysteries. The local Ojibwa First Nations, for example, tell stories of fabulous monsters which inhabit the depths, shores, and skies of these inland seas. One of these lake creatures is known as the Memogovisui, long-haired sirens who reside within the coldest, deepest recesses of Lake Superior. According to a preserved account written in 1670 by the Jesuit missionary Claude Dablon, the Memogovisu are described as, quote, marine people, somewhat like the fabulous tritons or the sirens, who always live in the water and have long hair reaching to the waist. These sirens are not known to be friendly. In the same historical account written by Claude Dablon, He writes that while living amongst First Nations people in Canada in the 1600s, he was told a story that had been passed down amongst members of the community. The story goes that one day a group of men were out near Lake Superior when they came upon some funny-looking stones. At the time, they didn't know what the stones were made of, but they noted that they were exceptionally good for heating up and cooking with. Later, it would be discovered that the stones were copper, but at the time, this was not known. As the men gathered up the copper stones and slabs and prepared, to t- and prepared to take them back home, they suddenly heard a loud, booming voice echo out across the lake, saying, Who are those robbers carrying off from me my children's cradles and playthings? Being completely alone in a remote area of the lake, the men were startled by the voice. Looking up, they saw a fierce, long-haired creature, which resembled a person, rising out of the lake. Dablone would recount what happened next as follows. However this may be, that astounding voice inspired such terror in our travelers' souls that one of the four died before reaching land. A short time afterward, a second was taken off, and then the third, so that only one person was left, who, after returning to his country and relaying all that had happened, died very soon afterward. After this incident, other men tried to go out to find the area where this event took place, but were unable to. This spawned a piece of folklore regarding a floating mythical island somewhere on Lake Superior, where unseen forces and fantastical creatures roam, luring travelers to their deaths. Could the SS Kamloops have accidentally stumbled upon this floating island and been taken down by the Memo Govisu? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Seems logical. Seems likely to me. Yeah. Anyway, how fucking haunted is this story? That's all, that's all of the information I have for you. What do you think of the fucking SS Kamloops and Old Whitey and Grandpa's Ghost and all of the haunted wolves eating people's bodies, the survivors? 
eating lifesavers. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like, this is a very niche subject and a very niche story. There's no reason for any of us to know this or know any of these details. And now we know it all and we can't unknow it. So like when we're talking to people in the back of our mind, they're like, oh, hey, what do you want to do for lunch today? You know, oh, I was thinking of like trying this new taco place. In the back of your mind, you're just like, there's a floating magical island somewhere in Lake Superior. And perhaps there was a boat back in the 1920s that went out too late because there was an insurance scam going on. They were trying to leave before insurance got hiked. And they met their end because... The, there was a perhaps a rogue wave or something. And then a siren and, called but, them to the rocks. Yeah, and then they were there and they perhaps died to the elements. But no, because there was wolves and there were wolf bites. And a year later, a letter from one of the last survivors was found in a pickle jar. And their family kept that letter until it too was eventually lost to the time. And when divers found the wreck 50 years later, there was found to be bodies bodies preserved inside but they weren't just preserved like bodies they were turned into soap and they float around and there's also a grandpa ghost that is going to be going on in your mind while your coworkers Forever. are asking for the rest what of your you're life doing for lunch yes and now i've ruined my day was do you understand like how insane i felt reading this because i started with learning about the fear of submerged man-made objects and then i dovetailed into a story about how lake superior never gives up its dead and i'm like why don't they give up their dead and then i'm like oh it's because bodies turn to soap down there and whereas a regular body that like you know is not in such a cold lake drowns normally that body unless it gets tangled up will eventually fill with gas and as it begins to decay and float to the surface but not on lake superior mm -hmm. because of how fucking cold it is instead they just turn to soap and then it sent me down a rabbit hole of did you know that a lot of these bodies have never been recovered and a lot of the shipwrecks were declared grave sites by the canadian government and you can't go down there and then i'm like why can't you go down there and then i start learning about this shipwreck that is at the bottom called the ss cam loops and is considered to be one of the most haunted shipwrecks on earth and then i'm like oh my god what's the story of the kamloops and then i learned that it's all because of company that was running uh that didn't want to pay high insurance and yeah. because of that a bunch of people died and then learning that not all of them went down with the ship they were eaten by wolves right. and a lady's wig and teeth were found but never her body yeah, and then there was also a guy who was, like, giving a speech about the mummies he found, and he, for some fucking reason, decided to make a candle from stuff that was preserving the mummies. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? This is not a time where you can't just go buy a fucking candle. I, we may never know why some people are so fucking haunted. And before I ask you for your final <laughs> thoughts, I'm going to read my sources. Sources. My main source for this episode and the source of the majority of the quotes that I read to you come from, quote, Submerged Cultural Resources Study, Isle Royale National Park, by Daniel J. Linehan, the Submerged Cultural Resources Unit, and the National Park Service, published in 1987. And I will link the uh, Wayback Machine archive link in the show notes for this episode. Also, Wikipedia, also r slash submechanophobia, also, wisconsinshipwrecks.org, 
Also, the YouTube channel Ask a Mortician has a video on the cam loops called The Lake That Never Gives Up Her Dead, where the host of the show, Caitlin, visits Lake Superior and talks about a bunch of stuff. She mostly focuses on the Fitzgerald, and she even talks to a distant relative of the Fitzgerald. So if you guys want to learn about that shipwreck that I didn't talk about, you should definitely go watch this video, and I will link to it below. Also, hi, Caitlin. Come on our show. <laughs> and... Also, an article for quickcountry.com by Paisley Dunn entitled Lake Superior is one of the most haunted lakes in America. Also, an article by Greg Newkirk for weekandweird.com called Meet Old Whitey, the Preserved Corpse of the SS Kamloops, Lake Superior's Most Haunted Shipwreck. Also, an article entitled Stone Now Marks Burial Plot for SS Kamloops Tragedy by Jody Lundmark. And the Library of Congress, Collections of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, Volume 16. Natalia, what the fuck? Yeah, man. I I think still the most haunt like, that was all super, super haunted. But I feel like the most haunted aspect of this whole thing is just the guy who was giving a speech about <laughs> mummies he found. And for some reason, he decided he was going to have candles burning while yes. he was giving the speech, even though it was like 1920-something and he didn't need candles. And But then he also decided to like home make his candles. In the moment, yeah. In the moment from uh, stuff he thought a body was preserved with. And then he also decided to tell people that... That he did it. That he did it. And then also that he was wrong and it was actually human body fat. I I don't know what to do with that information, but I, I read it. So now you have to know it. And now you go spread that word far and wide. Yeah. I'll never stop. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? <clears throat> BRB, going to go get a piece of paper and I'm going to write out that there was a man... Who unwittingly <laughs> made candles out of human ancient human body fat and gave a speech about it, unbeknownst to him. I'm going to put that note, I'm going to sign it with a date, and I'm going to say, this is my last, this is my last thing I'm going to say. And then I'm going to put it in a pickle jar, and I'm going to set it free out into Lake Superior. I can just imagine a guy opening that pickle <laughs> jar and being like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.